1: Welcome to the LaRue Dawn Basketball Podcast. I am Danny LaRue, your interim host. Subbing in for Nate, I brought the theme song back because I wanted to. I'm enjoying it. That's the way it is. And this episode has two big chunks in it. The first is catching up on news with Tim Bontemps of the Washington Post, the Jimmy Butler big story from early on Wednesday, the Mavericks news, and a lot of other stuff that has built up over the last couple weeks. So Tim and I get into all that. And then the other big thing, far bigger, half an hour and a half, basically, with Jared Dubin about the Knicks, super in-depth, really enjoyed it. So that is this episode. I think you will really like it. Well, thank you so much for coming on.
2: Absolutely, man. Happy to do it. Very busy day today.
1: Absolutely a busy day. I mean, you had two big stories that happened at about the same time. We'll start with Jimmy Butler. Butler... There, there were these reports swirling around of originally it was going to be him going to Minneapolis for a meeting with Thibodeau. Then it changed to LA for a meeting with Thibodeau. And then the news that came out on Wednesday that he has requested a trade and that is huge for a a series of different reasons but another interesting part of this is what it sounds like are the teams he wants to be traded to
2: yeah i mean there's a couple things here right uh the first sign that things were going to not go the way they initially seemed to be was when this meeting got moved from minneapolis to uh los angeles was never really a great sign for the wolves that that was uh that was the case here usually when something like that happens it tends to signal that uh You know, players trying to get on neutral territory and kind of set their own terms of engagement. So, you know, that that I don't think was an ideal sign for the Timberwolves. And, you know, look, the timing of this whole thing is pretty strange to me. Uh, If you wanted to get out of Minnesota this season, you would think you would think this would have been done in the summer or you would have done it a little bit later in the season. I. It's almost kind of the worst possible time for Jimmy's camp to do this, not even because it puts the Wolves in a bad spot or because it's a week before training camp, but just because there isn't really a lot of options to trade him anywhere. Um, As you know full well, the fact that you can't trade a lot of the players in the league, all the guys who were signed this summer, until at least December 15th really is going to camper uh, a lot of teams' abilities to put together packages that can, at minimum, match Jimmy's salary with players that make sense for them, right? so. Um, you know, you did mention the teams that are that he's interested in, you know, the fact that it's the Clippers, the Nets and the Knicks, all big market teams, all teams that could sign Jimmy this summer. There's just one very significant difference. None of them could offer him a five-year contract this summer at the full max, which would be over $200 million. It seems very clear to me that, you know, part of asking for this trade now, kind of like when Carmelo Anthony got traded back in 2011 to the Knicks – uh is to allow um is to allow the uh the team that gets him to give him that five-year max deal um next summer right that that's clearly what the goal is so you know my guess is right now that Tom Thibodeau isn't gonna make a move any anytime in the near future unless somebody comes in with a crazy offer uh I'm guessing Minnesota's going to go into the season with Jimmy on the team and they'll see how things go but um you know it, it is just a very odd situation to have a guy requesting a trade a week before before training camp starts, it, it just, it, it, it's just hard to see how that's going to work out very well, at least in the short term, for either him or the Wolves.
1: Another element that makes this really interesting from a game theory perspective, however you want to say it, is where Jimmy Butler fits in among the priorities of these teams. So, Certainly, all of them would love to have him, but let's use the Clippers as an example. I assume that the Clippers, if they had to make a choice, would rather have Kawhi Leonard than Jimmy Butler. We don't know if Kawhi Leonard's on the table, they have substantially more information than we do. But how do you approach that in terms of giving up assets for Jimmy Butler right now? So there's the whole bird in the hand is worth two in the bush argument, but then there's also the is it, is the bird actually in the hand? And so those are conversations. And that's a power that Jimmy Butler and his team wield that it doesn't have to dictate what the trade is because we've seen in different circumstances. Kawhi Leonard is the most obvious example here where it sounds like a team that was not in that mix just decided he was worth it at the price that. They were willing to take. Some of that was the unusual nature of what the Spurs wanted, DeMar DeRozan, and all that kind of stuff. But it is worth watching moving forward. I mean, we have seen a lot of these players traded in the last year of their deal or effectively in the last year of their deal. And so you have the rental price, which would be what a lot of these teams would pay. And then you have everything else. And then the other part of this that's really important is the one New York and LA team that was not on this list, the Los Angeles Lakers. I think that's important for a couple different reasons, because if Jimmy Butler is not interested or not like if they're not a priority for him, well, then the Lakers are going to turn to somebody else because they can go after other people. And one of those other three teams that were listed will make it happen for Jimmy Butler. That's not hard for them to do.
2: Yeah, I mean look, I, I'm not entirely too concerned about, you know, what teams are on lists and what teams aren't right, because at the end of the day, um You know, there just isn't a lot of leverage anyway in Minnesota's camp, so they're probably just going to make the best offer they can make. That being said, uh, of all these teams, to me, the Clippers by far make the most sense for a possible trade, right? If you look at where the Timberwolves are at, they've got uh, a very good, um, you know, they've got got Carl Towns, who they're, you know, probably eventually going to get signed to a max deal here at some point, um, whether it's now or next summer. They've got, uh, you know, they've got Andrew Wiggins, who, you know, has certainly not been the player than a lot of people expected him to be, but is still a young guy with some potential. And, you know, they've got a coach and a, and a guy running their front office, Tom Thibodeau, who wants to win right now, right? The one thing we can say about the Clippers is, while they do have a couple of young guys that are interesting, they have a lot of NBA-caliber players, maybe more than any any individual team in the league, right? So if you're looking at a team that's trying to construct a package of guys who you could send back for Jimmy to surround some young guys, like whether it's Tobias Harris, some of the other pieces they've got, they have some pieces that could be interesting for Minnesota. And to your point, I think if I'm the if I'm the Clippers to me, if I can get Jimmy Butler in house I'm doing it because I, that gives me a guy that I can recruit other guys with, right? If I'm the Knicks, I have Chris Dasporesingus. They don't want to trade their picks. They're going to stink. They don't have, um, they don't have the ability, I think, to really,
1: act, you know, reasonably make an offer for him that makes sense. Yeah, the lack of filler salary is a big, big problem for them.
2: Yeah, I mean, you have to have Tim Hardaway in the trade. You would probably have to give up picks and stuff like they. They just don't have the the talent depth to do that. In and the Knicks have been very upfront, uh, including I think even yesterday uh, or Monday, um, saying that, hey, we're not going to make short-term moves here. Um, that, that's a sentiment that's that's been expressed to me privately previously, um, that they you know they really want to try to take the long-term view here for once, um, which you know is an encouraging sign, I think, if you're a Knicks fan. Uh, so I don't see them doing it. And the Nets, again, like the, like the Clippers, the Nets have some interesting young pieces, but the Nets, to me, don't strike me as the kind of team that's going to go all-in on a trade for Jimmy Butler right now, especially now that they just got out from under the last all-in trade they made. Um, and they are going to have the ability to sign two max guys next summer potentially And I think they would rather kind of buy their time and wait, but the the Clippers with the guy and Steve Ballmer as their owner, a team that's trying to win. Now um, I I could really see them as a team that goes, Hey, we could get Jimmy Butler in here and we can use him as a chip to get other guys. So I I think if he does actually get traded, uh, I think the Clippers make a lot of sense for him. Uh, And I mean, I don't know why the Lakers aren't on Jimmy's list, but I, I mean, it's hard for me to believe that, you know, if, if he ended up with the Lakers, he'd be disappointed either. So, um, yeah, that, that's certainly know, I, fair. I, I think the, the, the Wolves, to me, are going to make the best deal they can make if they end up having to trade him. And I also think there's a real chance they just don't trade him. And remember, we're talking about Tom Thibodeau here, a guy running the organization, a guy who has never exactly been um, – you know, he's never exactly been accused of, of looking past the, the present day he's in, right? Guy who's always trying to win the next game. And, uh, you know, Jimmy Butler is one of the 10 or 12 best players in the league and the best player in his team. And it's, it's hard for me to see him... Uh, you know, willingly move it on from Jimmy unless he's, you know, crystal clear on the fact that he's got no other option.
1: That's a really good point. And that's also why the Clippers make so much sense because not only you talked about the depth they have, but they have players at the two through four spots and Minnesota can replace Butler in a series of different ways if they want to do that and compete. But probably going to want somebody in that range. Tobias Harris won. I don't love Gallinari with their team, but maybe Tom Thibodeau does, and we have to go through this. Lou Williams is functionally off the table for now because of the Bird Rights issue. He would it would take right. a while for him to be included. However, I see Avery Bradley is absolutely a kind of guy that Thibodeau would be interested in. Should that happen, they also have a lot of expiring They Also salary. can't
2: trade Avery Bradley though too, right?
1: Yeah, Bradley's the one who they really can't can't do right now. So that's an interesting one. One name I will throw out there not that i have any insight in this i wonder how minnesota would feel about d'angelo russell he actually is more in line with the timeline of towns and wiggins and that could be a piece like in the back of my mind i'm sitting there going that could be that could be there could be something here and minnesota would get somebody who kind of fits in with that then teague they could there are a whole bunch of different things they could do with jeff teague but also Brooklyn doesn't need D'Angelo Russell. Like they could Dinwiddie, they could do a lot of other things. And theoretically- It's just hard for me to see Tom
2: Thibodeau going all in on D'Angelo Russell. Right. right.
1: Well, I I haven't haven't pieced this all together. I mean, that's the fun of recording this kind of as a rapid reaction podcast. Eventually there will be a, at some point there will be a Jimmy Butler New Destination podcast, whether that is in February, whether that is a week from now, we don't know. But- Right. I'm, I'm going to be fascinated to see what offers are on the table here. We have a lot of precedent, recent precedent of really, really good players being on the market with one year left in their contract. But I think a really important point that you brought up is when this is happening because it's so close to the season. All these other players, they can't get traded. And for example, the Lakers, like the Lakers effectively can't really trade for Jimmy Butler right now because they don't have enough salary ballast because of all the guys they just signed. And, you know, maybe they could come to an agreement later on. They could even have kind of a framework together before December, however, that's going to work. The possibility of reuniting Rondo and Tibbs would be fun. That's another kind of possibilities on the table here. But I think the most interesting angle here that we're going to have to see is the person making the decision of what happens with Jimmy Butler is Tom Thibodeau. Because right. his incentives are very different from Pritchard trading Paul George, from RC and Pop moving Kawhi Leonard, from even from the Cavs weirdo Kobe Altman just taking the job front office right. moving Kyrie. Right. This is a coach team president who is focused on the interim who might be making this move to determine his job. <laughs> And that is a very different calculus. And if I were a team in this mix, I would be seriously considering adjusting my offer to calibrate to to what he might value and prioritize.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily, I, I don't, I mean, to me, it's less about Tibbs' uh, job status. I mean, remember, he he's got, I think, another fourteen million owed to him the next couple of years. So, I mean, if he gets let go, I mean, it, it's not like he's going to be, you know, going to the Sisters of the Poor for help, right? So, to me, the the bigger issue is it's less about whether he's trying to save his job or not. So, I I don't think that will really factor into it. To me, it's much more along the lines of, you know, this is a guy who is famously and relentlessly about... The here and now, and 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 you know, it's always prepare, prepare, prepare for the next game, the next practice, the next shooter. Like that's where his mind is at, right? So, is he going to be willing to take a step back and trade away a guy who, let's be honest, I mean, Jimmy Butler is everything Tom Thibodeau values in a player. Like, there's a reason he went and got him in the first place, right? Like that he is the Tom Thibodeau guy, a grinder, guy who was, went to junior college, went to Marquette, was the 30th pick in the draft, was never seen as, you know, a, you know, a developing NBA superstar and, you know, kind of willed himself into being one of the 10 best players in the NBA. I mean, it's a pretty remarkable uh, career arc. Right. So um, I, I'm just not sure he's going to be willing to do that. But at the same time, like to go back to, to something I said before, when you look at next summer and the number of star players that are going to be available in free agency, I think a lot of these teams are going to feel an imperative to have a guy there that can recruit guys to come play with him. Right. Like we've seen in the past, these guys are not necessarily willing to go somewhere by themselves. Um, and try to strike it out on their own. But if there's other stuff there, that's a compelling argument for guys to stay. Look at Paul George, right? Look at You can go back and look at some of these other situations where guys have been traded and they've wanted to stay there. Um, It's been because of the ability to play with other guys. Mark Aldridge going to San Antonio. uh, Dwight Howard initially going to Houston to play with James Harden, even though that didn't work out. Like you go back in time, that's kind of the thing that's been there over and over again. So, you know, while the Knicks, I don't really think are realistic, both the Nets to some degree, but especially the Clippers, um, look like – teams to me that would have some incentive to get a guy in there uh, that could really serve as an anchor tenant in terms of being like, hey, I'm the face of this team. I'm going to go out and sell, you know, X, Y and Z free agents on why they should come play with me here in X city.
1: Yeah, I'll be fascinated to see where, where it goes, goes from here. But we can move on to the other significant news of the day, which, you know, far better than I because you've been connected following this story more closely, which is the announcement of punishment For the Dallas Mavericks as an organization and Mark Cuban personally for the sexual harassment workplace pervasive issue that they had as an organization.
2: Yeah, uh, I I have been following this really since the story came out back in February. Uh, Sports Illustrated did an incredible job. Um, you know, kind of really distilling a really, you know, uh, a really just unbelievably bad culture within the Mavericks, you know, business side of the organization. I, I feel like I should say off the top, just because this is a basketball podcast, uh, at every point, it seems to have been made quite clear that uh, the players within the Mavericks, led by Dirk Nowitzki and the, the coaches within the Mavericks, led by Rick Carlisle and the, the, the executives in the basketball side, led by Donnie Nelson. I really couldn't have handled themselves better when it came to – you know, this culture of uh, you know, sexual harassment and you know, misogyny and just a lot of terrible things being done and perpetrated uh, by the former team CEO, by some other employees on the business side. The basketball side has been universally praised for uh, the way it has it, it, it always treated female employees, the way it, it interacted with them. Um, you know, so I, I feel like just because it is a, a basketball podcast, it should be noted that this is about the business side. However, that includes owner Mark Cuban, who, while he was kind of cleared of wrongdoing in some respects, uh, he, he basically, everyone said he had no idea this was going on, uh, which, uh, you know, is on some level embarrassing to me. Um, it, it, you know, if you're running an organization like this, you have absolutely, and the only excuse you have is you have no idea this was happening. It, it's it's kind of a, it's it's a pretty lackluster defense, in my opinion. Um, you know, Cuban, Cuban agreed to pay $10 million to charities, four times as much as the league could have fined him. So in that sense, he worked with them them on that to have it be a stiffer penalty. He said in an interview with Rachel Nichols today on the jump that he's willing to, you know, his hope is that this is less about the punishment and more about the, um, or the, you know, the lack of a basketball punishment, more about the future, uh, you know, ramifications of it, the things he can do as an advocate going forward to try to prevent this stuff from happening in the future other places. Uh, But to me, I I feel like the NBA should have suspended Mark Cuban for some length of time. Uh, I think that would have sent a message In some way, this is not something the league tolerates. I think just, you know, slapping it with a monetary fine and, you know, enacting some workplace mandates, I just don't really think is enough. of a message sent. Clearly the CEO of the team, Cynthia Marshall, who Cuban hired after this happened, seems very, very uh impressive. She's done a she's completely overhauled the culture of the organization. They now have almost half their executives as women. I mean, she's really come in and kind of remade a lot of this stuff, which is great, but I, I do think that, you know, more could have been done to set a precedent. Because the bottom line is now this is the precedent going forward for how the league is going to handle these these situations. And you know every every such invest situation like this that comes up in the future, which hopefully 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 there's none, but realistically, there probably will be more. Uh, This is going to be kind of the backdrop for, okay, this is what happened with the Mavericks. What's going to happen with, you know, whatever team comes next?
1: I like that you use the word precedent there, because I think that's one of the really important elements of this. Sure, the fine is there, but also fines are weird precedent. I'm getting into my putting my my non-practicing lawyer hat on. I think that's a good way of putting it. But right we have seen, and again, this is getting outside of sports a little bit, but we have seen in large organizations that there can be, that these sort of issues can be pervasive. They can be either shoved under the rug or not reported at all. And now the NBA has kind of put a line here that it, if it, if there is going to be a suspension, it's going to have to be something more egregious than what has happened in Dallas. And there is no real line in terms of what that would be, where it would really be there. And so this I, – I, I, a couple of people, I think you were one who, who mentioned this too with the, the Donald Sterling thing. And I'm not saying like, Cuban should have been thrown out or anything like that. But owners, including most notably Mark Cuban, were very wary when that happened of the precedent of an owner being – removed basically forced to sell because of conduct like, like what what's what happened to Donald Sterling and that you know so it's interesting that it just so happened that the uh, an owner who was involved in a prominent subsequent thing happens to be the one who was worried about the slippery slope
2: yeah, and, you know, again, it does seem like Cuba didn't know, but you're right. I mean, it, it certainly is an interesting note, and, um you know, I, I mean, look, th- there are people that are going to say that the NBA should have given the um – um should have given the Mavericks some kind of basketball-related punishment. That was never going to happen. Um, the NBA has made it very clear over time that they don't view these things in the same pot, right? Like basketball punishments get basketball punishments. Uh, non-basketball punish- non-basketball uh, problems don't, right? That the, you know, the Timberwolves got several picks taken away for uh, the collusion thing with Joe Smith back in two thousand. Uh, Donald Sterling with the Donald Sterling thing the Clippers got you know no basketball related punishments right um, so from that standpoint I understand why the league didn't want to go down that, that road because it, it does make for just an incredibly awkward and complicated situation going forward because you know how do you determine this incident merits a first round pick where this incident doesn't right it's not it, it's not a very easy thing to try to do but again in my opinion the league could have sent a real message by suspending Mark Cuban for some length of time whether it was you know the entire season upcoming where he couldn't go to games, he couldn't participate in basketball-related decisions, whether it was until January 1st, whether it was until March 1st, whatever. Um, I think even if that's just a largely symbolic thing, uh, I do think it would have sent a message that, uh, this is not the kind of thing that can be tolerated because at the end of the day, Mark Cuban has billions of dollars, right? Uh, he, he can pay $10 million and it isn't going to impact his daily life. As crazy as that sounds to us as normal human beings. Um, that being said, he is clearly a rabid fan of the Mavericks and loves being the owner of the Mavericks. And I, I think him not being able to do that for a while would have sent more of a message. Uh, so I, I think in that sense, the NBA missed an opportunity here. But, you know, clearly this was a very exhaustive investigation. They, they did over 200 interviews. They looked at over, you know, well over, I guess, 1.6 million documents. That includes email and some texts. Um, you know, they, they sp- talked to all these people. Um, over basically his entire two decades, you know, his 18 years running the team. So it, it's certainly an exhaustive search or an exhaustive investigation by an outside, though it's hard to call it independent uh, counsel, given that the Mavericks hired it and, and, and they were reporting back to them and to the NBA. Um, but, you know, Cuban seems to have been uh, contrite about this from the beginning. He has instituted a lot of changes and it, it will be both very interesting to see a uh, how the Mavericks handle this going forward and b if this isn't the, the if this is is the, the only the first and last time that this happens in the NBA, or if it comes up again, as we've seen kind of repeatedly here over the past year or so, uh, as the, the Me Too movement has really taken off, you know, more and more places have been shown to have issues with this and and really across all sectors of society. So it, it's hard to believe that it's the, the last time that this will come up. And, you know, now, again, you know, like, like we just talked about before, the way the league handled this is the way um, this is going to be handled going forward. I also think this is a little off topic, but I mean, to me, it's kind of ridiculous that the NBA can only punish somebody two and a half million dollars for something at this point. Um, As I said back in February, the league fined Mark Cuban $600,000 for saying what everybody knew, that it was good for the Mavericks to lose as many games as possible this season. Right. So you're telling me that in theory that that's, you know, as Fourth of a, you know, that's 25% as bad as Donald Sterling having a series of ridiculously awful things to say about his players and about African Americans as a whole, right? Like, it doesn't make any sense. These franchises are worth billions of dollars now that, you know, two and a half million dollars is the veterans minimum salary. Uh, in the league. So, you know, if you're, if you're going to say that that is the most that an NBA team or an NBA owner can be fined for a transgression, I, I just think that's ridiculous. And uh, I would certainly think that at some point here in the near future, maybe as soon as this week during the NBA's board of governors meetings, that's going to be changed because uh, to me, it, it's kind of ridiculous that the NBA had to say, all right, Mark, we're gonna work with you so you can have this be a a ten million dollar, you know, charitable donation to women's groups as opposed to being fine ten million dollars that we will donate to women's groups because we can't find you that much money.
1: Right. I, I echo a lot of that. And they could even, not that they have to, do something like tying the fine amount to franchise values to the salary cap, something like that, just to make sure that it scales, because otherwise it will always be a lagging indicator. That's just well, the way I, this I mean, works. That's,
2: that's probably going too far, but even if you just up it to $10 million or $20 million, or, yeah. or say it's up to the league's discretion to determine how much to fine people, like, whatever, Like it, it shouldn't be, yeah, we can we can fine you the same amount of money it cost the Timberwolves assigned to all dang the other day. I mean, it, it just doesn't, it, it just isn't, it doesn't seem right in a league where everybody is making this much money now. And again, I, I, who knows when that rule is enacted. I probably was 20 years ago when it might have been longer when, you know, two and a half million dollars is a much different sum of money. But these days with the amount of money that's in the league, it, it just isn't adequate, I don't think, to address the biggest issues the league has to face.
1: I have very little to add to that, so I will I will echo your Your sentiment and your proposal. Other Minnesota news, Wal Dang, shockingly after the buyout, agreed to a one-year minimum deal with Minnesota. (laughs) The most, most significant part of that for me, I'm not surprised that Dang got the minimum, but this puts into stark relief the amount of money that he gave up. To to do that because that would be a lot for him to make back in 2019 20. But I think part of it is that he just wanted to play. I mean, he's 33 years old, going to turn 34 late in this season, and that means he doesn't really have long as an NBA player.
2: Yeah, I mean, and he has made a lot of money. And also, I mean, remember, he basically got $18 million to sit at home last year. And uh, not that it makes it any easier to give up money, but. I think you saw with Ryan Anderson giving up a few million guaranteed money to make that trade with the the Suns work when it sounds like they basically told him he's either going to be they're starting for play a lot of minutes. Uh you know there's a, those are a couple of veteran guys that want to play and see the ability to make some money next summer and say hey, let me get on the market and uh showcase my my skills and get a chance to get another deal. I think we we'll all think it's a play. I, I thought they could have helped the, the Lakers last year. I just think the relationship between both sides got too toxic and they decided to just, you know, not really have them be around but um, I still think he can, can can do some things for them. Uh, obviously, like you said, he is 33. He does have a lot of miles on him. But uh, for a team that could really use a solid locker room presence, there are a few better guys in that department in the league than the wall. And, I think, you know, with his ability to to space the floor a bit at the four, um, you know, maybe he could play some three still, too. I I think he can give them some production off the bench, which is something that they really struggled with a lot last year.
1: It is, and it'll be weird, assuming that the rotation works the way I expect it to, to see Dang as a kind of a low-minute guy for Tibbs just because his starters play so many. But having Dang in case Jimmy Butler misses time again this year, or Wiggins, you know, having him there is is definitely beneficial. It doesn't look like they will have the services of Justin Patton, at least for a little while. Patton broke the other foot now, so I haven't heard a projected timetable. He wasn't going to be a big piece of their rotation this year, but it's another setback.
2: Yeah, I mean, not great that, you know, they, they keep that pick in the Jimmy Butler trade and draft a guy that played one game last year and looks like he's well on his way to not really playing much this year. Um, you know, definitely, definitely not an ideal situation for them. And, you know, again, when you look at a team that did struggle with bench production last year and could use, you know, a particular, another guy on the wing, you know, they did draft a couple guys this year, but, um, would have been nice if they, they'd gotten a wing player last year that they could, you know, have available or just anybody that could play given the way Patton's career has unfortunately gone so far. Now it, it looks like it might be two lost seasons for him right off the bat.
1: We'll keep the injury train rolling and move to Oklahoma City. Russell Westbrook underwent arthroscopic surgery on his right knee. The reevaluation period is four weeks. That puts him about in line if if he holds to that period to play in opening night against the Warriors. And if it extends, I think it was Royce. Young had the thing that they're not going to rush him onto the floor, that he'd been experiencing some stiffness. And this is the same knee that he has had three surgeries on, but those were three and a half years. Like the, the incident was the Patrick Beverly thing that was three and a half years ago.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I got some pushback from a lot of areas, uh, Thunder-related, when I, I tweeted right after that news came out that this is something to monitor, you know, still well, this has the first surgery since that initial slate, you know, spate of surgeries a few years ago when this first happened, which is fine. It's still four knee surgeries uh, or four procedures on one knee for a guy who is heavily reliant on athleticism and is moving into his 30s and is in the first year of a $200 million five-year contract. So, um, you know, do I think this is some great cause for alarm in Oklahoma City? No. But I certainly don't think it's ideal that you have Russell Westbrook, um, you know, immediately coming into the season banged up and probably, uh, you know, probably not being around for the opener. Like you said, I I don't see as much as he wants to rush back. It's hard for me to believe they'll rush him back. And, you know, frankly, with Dennis Schroeder there, you know, that's a chance for them to kind of let him get his feet wet with their offense and just play and um, kind of ease himself in there. Uh, into what they're trying to do. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's disappointing for us as basketball fans because I have a feeling we're not going to see Russ play the Warriors uh, here you know, here in the Bay Area on opening night. But, you know, that being said, we're still talking about Russell Westbrook, and he'll probably find one, you know, find a way one way or the other to, um, to have himself out there when things start to matter.
1: We don't know exactly what the stakes are going to be from Oklahoma City game in, game out, like where they're going to fall into the Western Conference. It's possible that, you know, if he makes them – definitely makes them less likely to win games when he's not playing, even though they did add Schroeder, who I think is a much better Westbrook replacement than Felton. I like Raymond Felton a lot, but I think that Schroeder is better in that specific role. So we'll we'll see especially how – Especially with the way they're – well, I was going to say, especially with the way their team is set up where mm-hmm. they kind of have – um you know
2: Russ and PG as the, the Paul George is the main fulcrums of their offense. You know Schroeder sometimes gets a little tunnel vision when he's playing, but I mean uh, that's you know that's a team where if he kind of slots into that Westbrook role, um, you know he probably is going to be able to put up some pretty decent numbers for them uh, until Russ is ready to go. So in some instances, you know I agree with you. He's definitely a better you know like for like replacement than than Felton, and he actually for them might be you know kind of the perfect guy to, to plug in there for uh, you know if there is any team that has to try to replace Russell Westbrook for. For
1: a yeah so we'll have to see and really what this reminded me of is, is just that Russell Westbrook has been dealing with injury stuff and his injury history is a little bit different just because a lot of it is like these freak freak things like the Patrick Beverly injury but whenever a player who relies on athleticism gets close to 30 or even past 30 it's something that we should be thinking about more often so it was really more more than anything for me a reminder that I should be thinking about that
2: yeah no question I mean you're talking about you know earlier this summer Paul George had a knee operation too uh, he looked great in uh, Team USA stuff in Vegas. I was there and saw him. I thought he looked fantastic. Um, you know Westbrook, you know, participating that some. Uh, but yeah, look, it's just it's just something to monitor when guys get in their 30s. You know, every time you you get cut open, you know that's that's something to pay attention to. You know, there's no such thing. It's kind of the it's kind of the, the old phrase. There's, it, there's no such thing as a minor surgery when it happens to you. Uh, but I, it's really just there's no such thing as a minor surgery period. Uh, if you're getting cut open, it, it's something to pay attention to and. You know, I'm certainly hoping that. Russell Westbrook comes back and it is just fine, but uh, you know it is something to monitor when you have a guy that heavily reliant on athleticism that's had you know that many procedures done on his knee at this point.
1: We can go to Phoenix. Another injury thing: Devin Booker uh, recently underwent surgery. He had an issue with his right hand Uh, that had a six-week timeline from when the surgery occurred. Which would, if it were rigid and injury projection time, should never be considered that way. That would be the night of their third regular-season game. Incidentally, also. So against the Warriors and so with Booker there are these weird questions about what the Suns are what they're playing for this year but Devin Booker is in an integral part in whatever they do so again the idea is you want to make sure that he's right before everything starts and something that Bobby Marks brought up is that Booker does have an escalating part in his contract if he gets basically if he qualifies for a designated rookie situation and It's not so much missing three games, if that's really what it ends up being, but if this becomes more of a lingering thing, then it lowers the likelihood of that, and so that would theoretically take some money off the table for him. But I think, in many ways, the more important part is... Devin Booker is so important to the Suns offense and anytime he either misses or isn't right is important for them.
2: Yeah I mean you look at the way the Suns have you know kind of diagrammed their off season. it certainly looks like uh, Igor Kokoskov the new coach uh, in Phoenix is going to basically turn you know use Devin Booker as you know what Donovan Mitchell was for the Jazz last year what James Harden was uh, for, the, for the Rockets the last couple of years and really be like hey you know it's your team go run the team and be the point guard and have the ball in your hands at all times right so if you're if you're going to if you're going to you know play him next to Shaq Harrison or one of these other guys and essentially have him be the guy uh, and don't really have another proven point guard on the roster you know it's a pretty big loss to not have him not only not him around at the start of the season but also, not have him, have him around for the entire preseason. I mean, you're talking about a new coach on a team with a bunch of new players trying to get a new system in place, and now you don't have your your fulcrum or your offense available for you know at least the first month of the, the you know the entire preseason. That, that's a big blow to them. And, you know, it is kind of weird that this happened now. Booker was having issues with this hand going all the way back to March. Um, I, there has, I haven't really gotten an explanation as to why it had to happen now. I, I know there was some kind of swelling recently, but, uh, the timing of that seems odd, um, that you wouldn't just get it done sooner. Uh, but that being said, you know, now we'll see what the Suns do. I know they really like Elliot Kobo. They're the the 31st pick in this year's draft. Uh, Shaq Harrison started every game in summer league, which in, you know, Igor as a new coach was coaching. Um, so not surprised at all if they just hand the, the offense to him. They have the Anthony Melton who they just picked up in the Phoenix trade or in the, in that Ryan Anderson trade, I should say, who, um, who could maybe step in and play some minutes for them right away. Uh, you know, they, they've got. They've got some stuff to figure out, but obviously the biggest thing, like you said, is that the guy who really is the the sun, no, you know, pun intended, around which this team is going to revolve this season, uh, from an offensive standpoint, is is not going to be there for any of the installation of what they're trying to do.
1: Miami had a series of different pieces of news that came out. Most importantly, Udonis Haslam is re-signing for his sixteenth season, all in Miami. <laughs> also, Dwayne Wade's coming back for for his last year as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, good for you, Donis. I mean, uh, people laugh that he's gotten this several, these minimum deals here for a few years, but you know, this is a guy that gave a lot of money earlier in his career uh, to stay in Miami and to help make those teams, you know, put those teams together. And, you know, this is, I think it's fair to say this is, you know, the, the Heat kind of helping him out on the back end. Um, nice to see Dwayne Wade back. And, you know, obviously today's news that Deion Waiters is going to be out, you know, probably through the start of the regular season. It This only reinforces – kind of the, the, the still baffling decision to give waiters a four year, $52 million contract last summer. Uh, they kind of, it seemed like the heat were basically bidding against themselves at the time. And then to make matters worse, they assigned him. And then just just a couple weeks later, I think announced that he needed to have ankle surgery, which really just didn't make a lot of sense. He, he, you know, he, he, you know, struggled through some of last year. He didn't, didn't play great. Um, This is ankle. He hurt during his one good year there during their big run a couple years ago. And they went 30 to 11 in the second half. He hurt his ankle late in that year. And you know he played 30 games last year. wasn't good. Had this surgery. You know, it, it, it's just not a great situation. And it, it you know for a team that is as cash strapped as the Heat are, you know that summer, last summer it could really come back to haunt them these next couple of years because you know for a team in the Heat that was so conscious of the future at all all you know all the time constantly trying to set themselves up to, to be ready for the next big free agency splash, you know, next summer when there's going to be eight or nine All-Stars available, the Heat are going to be completely out of the mix barring a lot of trades happening. And, you know, I, I think they'll really come to Rue that summer if, you know, they do remain where I think we both kind of expect them to in the, you know, six, seven, eight, nine discussion in the the Eastern Conference here for the next year or two.
1: And something that Jeff Stotts brought up, which I think is, is important, is that Waders had both a navicular fracture repair and an ankle surgery, and that's a lot to deal with.
2: Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the, the navicular bone, other than your are tearing your Achilles, it's probably not a worse injury you can have than breaking your navicular bone as an NBA player. I mean, that's a – that's an injury that has ended careers. Um, you know, I, I, usually that's a bigger issue with big guys um, than a guy like Dion. And, you know, I certainly hope for Deion's sake that he's fine um, long term. But, yeah, it's not – it's definitely not encouraging that, you know, we're into the second year of a four-year deal. And after playing 30 games last year, you have a guy that, you know, doesn't appear he's going to be ready to go at the start of the season. And there really is no indication of when he will be ready to go. I mean, maybe he'll be back you know, in November or something, and it won't be that bad, but, um, you know, it didn't sound like this was an incredibly optimistic update from Pat Riley today.
1: It didn't. I also want to note briefly that Waiters has a $1.2 million bonus for playing 70 or more games. It was already classified as unlikely, and now it's absolutely unlikely, so he's probably not going to get that money for this coming season. I think an underappreciated piece of news that's come out over the last couple days is that Jeff Bezdelic is retiring from coaching. He is considered the the architect, the leader of Houston's defense, which was a massive part of their success last year.
2: Yeah, I mean, just another hit in a, a summer full of them for the for the Rockets. I mean, look, they have a really good staff. Roy Rogers uh, is a terrific assistant. My guess is he's probably going to pick up uh, a lot of the defensive stuff. You know, he's been in Washington and Brooklyn, uh, was in Detroit, um, longtime player in the league. So, I mean, it's it's not that they don't have experienced people there, uh, but Jeff has did a remarkable job, um, you know, kind of helping – usher in this defense that the Rockets put together that really gave the Warriors a lot of fits last year and, you know, turned that team into a much better team than I think anybody expected. Um, At least I should say at the defensive end of the court, obviously the Rockets are supposed to be good, but, um, you know their defense really even held Golden State down in that that uh, that Western Conference Finals. It was you know their offense that really abandoned them in the second half of Game Seven that prevented them from going to the NBA Finals and probably winning a championship. So, um, you know between losing Trevor Ariza, losing Luka Doncic, uh, you know probably I think you you agree with me that the additions they've made, you know particularly adding Carmelo Anthony, you know may or may not work out great. We'll see if James Ennis can become a better three point shooter than he has in the past. We'll see if they can uh you know revive Michael Carter Williams. Williams career. Uh, but you look at the way Houston summer has gone and, you know, even the Ryan Anderson trade, I thought they gave up the two best players in that trade. Now, Ryan Anderson is clearly not going to be able to help you in a series against Golden State, as you saw at the end of game seven uh, or in the third quarter of game seven when Seth Curry cooked them for a couple minutes and, you know, kind of blew the game open in a way they couldn't recover from. But, you know, that series also wasn't Ryan Anderson's fault. And he is a guy who if you're trying to win games in the regular season, as you as I have talked about off the pod, um, no, I think Ryan Anderson's going to help Phoenix. I think Anthony Melton, like uh, um, like Jordan Bell last year for the Warriors, could be a rookie that actually could have played in that kind of series for a few minutes a game uh, after a season to see uh, you know a rookie year of seasoning in the league. So. Um, you know the Rockets. I have not really been a fan at all of their summer. Uh, I'm sure Daryl Morey is already trying to figure out ways to improve their team. Uh, you know, I've written a couple times. I have a feeling that Trevor Ariza is going to wind up on the Rockets again uh, if he, you know, unless he gets traded to a contender at the trade deadline because he'll get bought out um, by the uh, he'll get bought out by the by the by the Suns when they're out of the playoff mix uh, in February. But um, you know, if they want to catch Golden State, they have a lot of work to do. And frankly, they may have had their window, and I think Nada said this um, on on the pod when you guys have talked about it, their, their window might have been last year, and that, that might have been that. We might look back at them like the 2000 Blazers, who were up, what, 15, 17 in Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals against the Lakers, and uh, and let the lead slip away, and, and end up losing that series, and you know, not winning a title. I mean, that you know, last year's Rockets team might just end up being one of those great flash-in-the-pan teams that just didn't, you know, quite get over the hump and their one real shot to do it, and then they could never quite get back there again.
1: It would be a shame, but it is absolutely possible. It's, it's something worth considering. I'm I, not fixated, but I, I took note of some comments from Lonzo Ball. He described his surgery as a last resort, and he elected to have a meniscus trim rather than a repair. And he said they could have repaired it, but it would have taken him – six months versus six weeks, which is about the standard that you would talk about for it. And what concerned me about that, there are a lot of other considerations that might just be, you know, a young guy talking about distillation is Alonzo's 20 and sure him taking an extended period would have been concerning, but one of the, the issues with a trim versus a repair is that you don't have as much of your meniscus left and he's getting like the potential of losing more, you know, like having to get more trims or even a removal, I believe Dwayne Wade had a removal. I, I just am a, I'm a little bit queasy on it if the reason was the duration because the this Lakers team is not going to be as good as they'll be in 1920 and Lonzo's not battling for a, an NBA spot for his career or anything like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, was this was this on their reality show? These quotes? I think it
1: was. I think it was. Okay, I so, think it was that, and then probably I saw Feldman put it out, put it together. Yeah,
2: to all, all all, all, I, all I'm going to say is I'm not really going to take. Uh, all that seriously Uh, a conversation on a reality show between Lonzo and his dad about, um, you know, how he's got to get back on the court and be ready to play for the Lakers. Um, You know, I, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying he didn't choose the faster option or anything, but, you know, it it also might've just been, Hey, let's just take, we only need to do a tiny thing here. Um, You know, this, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say, sometimes the trim is really the, the better and only realistic yeah. option, depending contact, on what the context is. is
1: extremely important here. Yeah, that's all.
2: So I, I get where you're coming from, and certainly you would like to think that there are people around him saying, what's your long-term prognosis here? Uh, and that's what matters. Um, but I would certainly think that the Lakers uh, would be taking the long view. And if he needed to have the six-month surgery, I think he would have just had it. Um, you know, so I, you know, look, it's hard to know exactly what the truth is in a situation like this. But you know, the the the, the real thing that matters is that Lonzo has had a couple of injury, um, a couple of injuries now, and he, he just hasn't. Um, he just hasn't really, uh, you know, going back to college. And he needs to prove that not only can he get his shot right, which is a thing that everybody's you know, focused on, but he was pretty good last year as a rookie. He needs to prove that he can be healthy because this is not the first time he's been banged up. And, you know, he's got to be able to stay on the court in order to maximize his ability to help the Lakers out.
1: Yeah, that's certainly a fair point. We could talk about Zaire Smith. Uh, there was an estimate that came out on Tuesday that the Sixers expect him to come back from his Jones fracture around Christmas. I don't think Zyra Smith is going to be a huge part of their immediate plans just because Philly has plenty of options, but they certainly want to see what they have in him. That was the now kind of infamous, famous trade. Where they drafted Mikael Bridges, whose mom works in the organization, and they traded it to get <laughs> to get an extra first round pick. I, I liked right. a little bit of Oysel with Zaire, and so I, you just want every rookie to have the full chance to succeed. So I'm, mean, I'm happy that he got to play some in summer league, but you know, not missing training camp, missing the first little bit of the season, it's always hard.
2: Yeah, I mean, this was honestly, I think, always going to be a redshirt year basically for him anyway. Even, I mean, obviously, you know, there's no such thing as a redshirt year in the NBA, but um, he's a a long-term development prospect more than like an immediate plug-and-play guy to begin with. And now with this injury, I I don't think we were going to see. I I get, you know, I don't, I don't think we're going to see much of Xavier Smith anyway. And I think like you said, after missing all camp, missing the first couple months of the season, I I think it's. I think it's much more likely that um, I think it's much more likely that we're we're looking at a guy that gets some cameo appearances here and there, maybe like <laughs> say Furkan Courtmaz was, you know, his first couple years in the league, and, and Luau Cabarro uh, before he was traded in Philly. He, he'll get a chance here and there, but this is a team that's trying to win right now, and I think even when he's healthy, Zaire's probably a guy that isn't quite ready to help you win right now anyway.
1: Two other quick pieces of news: uh, Brent Berry is leaving the booth to become the vice president of basketball operations for the San Antonio Spurs. He's replacing Monty Williams. who's going back, I believe onto the bench in the aforementioned Philadelphia 76ers. So I, for selfish reasons, I'm very disappointed because I think Brent is the best national color analyst that was on television right now. And so for selfish reasons, that's disappointing, but he's been a potential front office candidate for a long, long time. And so it'll be interesting to see what he does in this next step.
2: Yeah, I mean, Brent's going to be running a team or coaching if he wants to. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, you know, Golden State tried to hire him last year. Uh, Detroit tried to hire him earlier this year. Uh, you know, I think he didn't really want to leave San Antonio, uh, you know, his kids are, are, I think, in middle school-ish, uh, that age range. Um think he wanted to be around them for a while. Now he gets to do the best of both worlds and be, you know, with the Spurs, a team he spent a lot a lot of time with during his career. Um, you know, uh, it, it's it's a great spot for him. Like you said, selfishly, I'm, I'm bummed out because he, he's just such a terrific uh, voice on TV, great for the league, great to listen to, um, really sharp uh, when it comes to uh, – uh, Uh, when it comes to, you know, teaching people about the league, um, you know, it's uh, it, it's it'll it'll be disappointing from that standpoint to not get to hear him, you know, on NBA TV and doing games once or twice a week, and then during the playoffs. But uh, thrill for him as a guy, one of the one of the nicest guys in the league, and a really sharp guy who I, I think will be running an NBA team uh, before too long. You know, as soon as he is ready to branch out from San Antonio, assuming you know RC doesn't step away, my guess is he'll have a job running a franchise. You know, as soon as he wants it.
1: It wouldn't surprise me at all if that's the case. Jarrett Jack is now going to enter his third stint as a member of New Orleans. Once as a Hornet, once as a Pelican, and now he's getting back. He signed a 10-day with them, not last season, the season before. He was with the Knicks all last year. He's on a non-guaranteed deal, but I think Jack has a chance of making that team. I think he could really add something, especially like Ian. I don't love Ian Clark's fit with where this, with what the Pelicans need. So maybe Jarrett Jack is a better answer for that. And then the last piece of news, I think this is somewhat interesting and this is more in my wheelhouse than I mean so hopefully the listeners as well. The NBA today announced that they're uh not changing, or this was maybe on Monday that they're they're not changing the estimates for the 1920 season but they moved up the estimates for the 2021 season a couple million dollars. So now that so it's going to be 109 and then a 132 tax for next season and then a 118 143 for 202021.
2: Yeah, it was interesting to see um it was interesting to see, um, it was interesting to see that, uh, that number put out there, the higher number. It's not what I, uh, it's not what I expected. Um, but that being said, you know, the, the league after the cap being flat the last couple of years, the, the league was kind of expecting it to jump up a bit. Um, you know, we'll see how solid these numbers remain. I mean, remember, there, there's been times in the past that projected to be higher than they were and then they've come down. Um, you know, I think everybody's pretty confident that these, these, these couple jumps in the cap are going to stay in and certainly there's a lot of teams are going to need them to stay in because there's a lot of teams bumping up near the tax line and could really use to um to really use uh really use that extra you know jump up to get away from it a little bit as some of those 2016 deals start to come off the cap um you know but we'll uh you know we'll see how that plays out going forward here but i um you know i'm at this point I, i think everybody in the league is uh is ready for some extra money to get into the system now certainly the players are um you know certainly the players are frustrated with the way you know this last summer i think in particular went and you know with a lot of big markets you know hunting for big-name players next summer with, you know, Chicago, Philly – both New York teams, both LA teams could all have max cap space next summer. Uh, We could be looking at a, a, you know, a real field day for, for some of these players, you know, getting back in the market, trying to get themselves some money.
1: Yeah, that could definitely be the case. So it'll, it'll be worth watching. Thanks for taking time to jump on and do some news. Anytime, man. Happy to do it. Thanks again to Tim Bontemps for taking the time to come on. You can of course read him at the Washington Post. You can subscribe to his Monday morning post up newsletter, which I think is really worthwhile. Collects a lot of different things around the league with some original work too. And you follow him on Twitter, at Tim Bontemps. Big podcast with Jared Dubin going super in-depth on the Knicks coming up. But first, a message. Get to hear Nate's voice and hear a message from Lumosity.
3: If you listen to podcasts, you're probably a pretty curious person. I know my fiance falls into that category. Oh, wait, no, no, she's not my fiance. She's not my wife. Wow, that is a massive slip up. (laughs) She actually heard me say that. She's laughing in the background. And I should say wife. Wife is really just so much easier to say than fiance. Husband, on the other hand, is like kind of a sorry word. Not really a huge fan of, of that. But when you try to shorten it to hubs or hubby or something, that makes it even worse. But anyway, back to my point here. My wife loves playing word games. She likes challenging herself and she really enjoys Lumosity, which is the world's most popular brain training program. You sign up for Lumosity and you take a free 10 minute fit test to get your baseline scores, see how you compare to others your age, and then you can start training. And they've built their brain training on a foundation of research and expertise to help you improve your mental abilities. And they provide a personalized training program based on 60 plus cognitive games and activities. Whether you want to work on memory, speed, problem solving, hone a balanced set of skills, isolate one skill you want to focus on, you can do really any of those things at lumosity.com. That's L-U-M-O-S-I-T-Y.com slash capspace to sign up for that free fit test, get a 30% off Lumosity Premium. Once again, L-U-M-O-S-I-T-Y dot com slash capspace to take that free fit test and get thirty percent off Lumosity Premium. Lumosity dot com slash capspace, let them know at that slash cap space URL that you came from us.
1: Now on to Jared Dubin. He and I have a, a really long but great conversation about the Knicks, a lot of the changeovers that happened during the offseason, including the coach, the guys they drafted, what's going on with Kristaps porzingis along with the usual dunked on season preview elements like predictions and better and worse than people think and all that kind of stuff. One thing I will note at the outset, there was some ambient noise on this broadcast So I actually cut it out. And sometimes when you cut ambient noise from a broadcast, it thins or it alters a little bit some of the speaking parts because it can't necessarily separate those two things. I felt that it was a superior recording that way versus the alternative. So if you feel differently, I apologize, but that's the way things are.
4: Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I always enjoy this podcast.
1: The Knicks are in an interesting place because I think where we want to start with this, and I'm guessing we'll get to this point throughout the recording, is just defining success and defining priorities for this season because I think we could probably agree at the outset that the expectation is that the Knicks aren't going to be super good this year.
4: Whoa, but- whoa, whoa. I, I, I'm already, no. Um, Yeah, no, I don't have a quibble with that at all.
1: (laughs) But there is a lot of ground between, you know, even if we're like fringe playoff team, let's let's put that as kind of towards the best case scenario, and whatever the worst teams in the league are, you know, that that line can be very different in different years. And certain teams don't have a choice in the matter in terms of where they end up in that realm. But other teams really do, and I'm fascinated with the Knicks on two points with this. One is, how much choice do they have in the matter, and what do they prioritize? Do they want to look good for free agents, win a couple of extra games, or do they want to maximize... Their draft pick, or maybe some hybrid between the two, where they're they're not trying to lose, but they're also you know not gunning for every win.
4: Yeah, I think it's that ladder path. Um, I don't think that they're going to have to try to lose at least for a, a lot of the year, and some of it is going to be out of their control just because. We don't know if or when Chris Stapps is coming back. James Dolan has already floated the possibility that he could be out the entire year. Clyde Frazier has done that, too. Um, you know, they're saying he's targeting, like, a December return, which seems a little bit on the early side to me. You know, last year, the two guys that tore their ACLs, Zach Levine and Jabari Parker, came back in, like, a little bit more than 12 months, close to 13 months, whereas for Chris Stapps, December would be 10 months. And, you know, given where the Knicks are in their building process, it seems particularly unwise to try to rush him back in 10 months. I think something like February or March seems like a better sort of timeline. And if he's out for that long, I'm not sure they have much choice in terms of trying to win a ton of games. You know, they could try, but it might not work anyway just because the level of talent without the best player just isn't there. And I think that, you know, in that case, they want to show not necessarily that they can win a bunch of games and get 30-something wins, but more that they have players who are good at specific things and can fit in around... The kind of guys they're going to be chasing next offseason while at the same time saying, you know what, prioritizing the development of these players is probably a little bit more important than saying going from 22 wins to 28 wins. And then, you know, in that case, you get a little bit better of a draft pick as well.
1: Right, and I think that's going to be the happy medium that they go towards, and really, the nature of this is not always a preseason plan that gets executed, it's adjusted right. on the fly, and the biggest X factor in all of this is probably when Kristaps Persingus comes back, there could be a point if it gets pushed late enough that it kind of gets answered for them, where, you know, the, the incentives are different and you go slow, and something else to remember with ACL injuries, and you can make an argument in a couple different directions of who is going to be more cognizant of this is that you talked about like Zach Levine coming back, you know, 12, 13, 12, about a year after he, after he tore his ACL, mm-hmm. he wasn't the same player the rest right. of that year. And so for Porzingis, a guy who is about to enter restricted free agency, while I don't think he has to worry too much about getting a big contract because people know how good Kristaps Porzingis is, I could see his people... And himself, possibly, saying, you know, I don't want to push this too hard because, A, there's a chance of re-injury, and B, if I'm not the same guy, maybe teams are a little bit more hesitant to commit big money to me. And maybe the kind of the equivalent of that, that Chad Ford called the international man of mystery in the draft process is true here, where it's better to be uncertain. Than to have the po- a, a clearer possibility of a negative.
4: I think that's especially true for him because he's shown, uh, you know, in the three seasons of his career that he's played so far, he has, you know, maintained very very strong play for around a month and a half, two months. At the start of the season, all three years he's gotten off to this blistering hot start. And then all three years he suffered some sort of like minor lower body injury in, you know, mid to late December. And you know, in the first two years of his career, all that did was, you know, knock his production back a little bit over the course of the rest of the year. And then last year it knocked his production off a little bit. And then a month or two later he also tore his ACL. So you're talking about a guy who's had trouble sustaining his starts to the year anyway now also dealing with the after effects of coming back from a major injury as opposed to a minor injury it's something that could definitely affect his play on the floor and obviously you know that affects like you said it's it's somewhat out of their control because of you know how much that will affect the team i think another thing that will affect them is you know the last few years they've been this team that gets off to like better than expected starts and that on occasion has diluted them into thinking they're a better team than they are and i wonder if that happens without chris Stapps or if they end up starting off the season really poorly and that will sort of affect their decision making over the rest of the year as well and they say you know you know what maybe we'll just try to trade somebody like courtney lee which i mean they've been looking into doing throughout the offseason anyway but it hasn't happened yet uh, there was one point earlier in the offseason where somebody reported that he expected to get traded before the year i haven't heard anything about that since then but they, they do have a fairly tough schedule early on, other than the fact that they start the season, I think, with an Atlanta, Brooklyn possible back to back. Maybe not. I I can't remember. But after that, they have a pretty tough, uh, you know, opening month. So it's possible that they could get off to, you know, a much worse start than we've gotten used to from them over the last few years when they've been like hovering around 500 for most of the first month of the season. And, uh, if that doesn't happen, that could spur them onto a different plan of action than maybe they plan for right now.
1: And something else that's notable about that early stretch. Yeah, you're right. It starts out with. With Atlanta and Brooklyn, it's not a back-to-back, but it's there's a day off in between. But a lot of those tough games happen to be at home. And something that I've seen with front offices, in some ways, actually, even more front offices with owners that are meddling, let's put it that way, is that losing at home, especially losing badly at home reflects differently than losing on the road. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, like in that, in that first month, they play the Warriors, the Nets, the Pacers and Boston. Like those are all those teams at home and. You know they could certainly win a game or two of those, possibly. Yeah. But I could also see them losing a lot of those. I mean, and I, I haven't looked at like what what of those teams run back to backs or anything like that. But I'm very interested in kind of those circumstances of when the decision makers, whoever the whoever that is, whether it's owners putting a thumb on the scale, the general manager, however your however the team decision structure is run is when they get the chance to see that stuff in person in front of their home crowd. Because sometimes that can lead to a different sense of where they are. And with the Knicks, you talked about how that's been in previous years, where they've gotten off to that stretch, and maybe it hasn't necessarily led to like, oh, we're going to make a big trade in in November or December or something like that. But it changes the way you approach selling off the guys you already have Mm -hmm. and everything else like that. And so the Knicks... Could theoretically, if you, if you agree with where I think we both are on this team, from a dose of realism early on as opposed to a dose of undue optimism
4: early on. Right, and that's I think the optimism has been to a lot of people clearly undue over the last few years, just because they've gotten off to these you know above 500 or around 500 starts while having like negative point differentials at the same time, and that's happened I think like all three years, which is uh, pretty cr- they've been you know outperforming their win expectancy by. Two or three wins just at the start of the year, which I mean, if you do that over the course of the entire season, it's you know extremely beneficial. To do it that early is, is really rare and really lucky. You know, there's no other word for it. And it'll be interesting to see if that trend reverses itself a bit. And and I do agree that having it happen in front of the home fans would be especially a dose of reality. That's not to say it's definitely going to happen. They just do have a pretty tough start to the season, and and it's without. Having Kristaps there to buoy, you know, the offense and especially the defense, you know, near near the basket in particular, it's, you know, it seems somewhat more likely to me that their true talent level will shine through than than it has the past few years because Kristaps has been so good early on and that has helped them get wins that they maybe shouldn't have gotten. And I think, you know, as an extension of that, you know, after that first month of the year, they have I mean I, I tweeted about it earlier this summer. They have one of the toughest stretches of schedule of the entire season from Christmas through like the end of January. And it includes a, a six-game west west coast trip in there where you know they, they play the Bucks on Christmas, then a couple of days later they go play the Bucks in Milwaukee, then they're in Utah, in Denver, in the in LA for the Lakers, in Portland, in Golden State, then they come home for Indiana and Philly travel to Washington, and then play Oklahoma City and Houston at home. That stretch is from December 25th to January 23rd, and that could either be, you know, depending on whether you believe the next timeline or whether you believe the more realistic timeline of Chris Epps coming back sometime around February, that stretch can either be right after Chris Epps gets back or right up to leading up to when he's supposed to come back. And, I mean, that's, I think, two, four, six, eight, ten. 10. That's 12 games. That's a stretch where you could easily see them going, like, you know, 2 and 10, 1 and 11, something like that. That could be, you know, do a lot of determining about how the rest of the season goes too.
1: Yeah, it definitely could, and it's also worth noting that that stretch not only does it coincide with Porzingis' potential like kind of the gray area in the timeline, but also the trade deadline. You know, that's right before all right. of these decisions need to be made, and. That gets into one of the more interesting questions. You and I are both kind of made our original stakes in the basketball writing world through the cap and the CBA. And it gets into Mm -hmm. the question that I think is really interesting beyond all of these other ones about the Knicks is let's say you brought up Courtney Lee and Courtney Lee, you know, he has another year. He's paid through 1920 and One of the challenges with this Knicks team, I wrote about this for The Athletic, about the challenges of stretching Noah's contract, Mm -hmm. is that they kind of need to know... Well, not even kind. of I shouldn't. I shouldn't hedge it like that. They absolutely should know before they make any move involving multi-year salary, kind of like where this is going, what they want, and it, not necessarily who's going to say yes, because that's an entirely different question. And so, moving Courtney Lee, you know, you're you're trading him theoretically for something else. Now, assuming a team does not take him into cap space, because that is functionally impossible right now, and I don't even think there are many trade exceptions that are that big. There are a couple, but those teams aren't going to use them. So you're getting something back that could be an inferior player at a similar price. It could be an inferior player at a better contract and all all those elements. And so they have to be thinking about the short game, the long game the whole time, because any piece they get back in any trade is something else that fits into where they're going.
4: Right. And, you know, to me, I mean, the the Noah thing obviously plays into it. To me, the reports that they were going to wave and stretch him on September 1st never made any sense they get the same benefit from wave and stretching noah next summer as they would from doing it on september 1st which obviously has passed already but they don't get the potential benefit of being i mean it's extremely unlikely but there's a zero percent chance that they can trade him if they wave and stretch him while there is some non-zero but very close to zero chance that they can do it if they wait until you know next summer to try to wave and stretch him. But to me, they should really only be doing that if they already know that they're dumping Lee and Hardaway without taking back any future salary in return, because those are the three moves that they need to make in order to acquire the double max cap space that it seems like they want. All three of those things need to happen. Trade Lee, trade Hardaway without taking any money in return, and Wave and Stretch Noah. That's really the only way that they can get the double max space. It doesn't make much sense to do the Noah move without also doing Hardaway and Lee, just because there are other ways you can get the single max space. And if you're not going to get the double it doesn't seem worth it to have no on your books for five more years or sorry for four more years as opposed to two more years. Um, that, that's just sort of where I come from with it.
1: I would go one step further and you could say that this is parsing, but I don't think it is, is that you also want to have commitments from, from guys before you, two, from oh, two, from two players before that, because clearing the space at, like, if they wait that long, and I, I think this is what you were getting at, but I want to make sure for listeners who, who don't internalize this the same way that you and I do, right. that clearing the space with unnecessary moves before I, before you know that you have those commitments could lead to problems as well and i mean there are times when it works out but there are other times like i mean a good example of this maybe the most extreme in recent history is sacramento like sacramento
4: right.
1: on july i was 1st, gonna
4: i was gonna point to houston where they traded jeremy lynn and a first round pick to clear the space for chris bosh didn't end up getting chris bosh
1: now yeah, houston, that's has,
4: houston has daryl morey so they use that space in a productive way and it worked out for them over the long term if you have the same confidence in Steve Mills and Scott Perry to do that, if they don't get the guys they want, great. Have that confidence. That sounds fantastic. I would hope that they could do the same thing. Uh, based on the history of the New York Knicks organization, I don't necessarily share that confidence. I'm not saying that they're going to go spend, you know, max money on free agent X who's really like a B-minus player. Uh, we have seen them do that before. Uh, so I, I, I don't think it would necessarily be wise to make that move so far in advance that you can't possibly have commitments Um, and it would probably be best to wait on that move unless you get a really favorable deal that, you know, which you can't pass up
1: right and the way that I've been thinking about the the next double max thing I'll write on this at some point I haven't done it yet is you, you brought up the trio of Noah Hardaway and Lee and the way that I've seen it is you need to offload two and stretch the third the most logical way to do that is the exact one that you said trading Hardaway and Lee and then stretching Noah depending on how the offseason goes I could see it being a different configuration probably not going to stretch Lee I think he's the best player plus contract combination but depending on how teams are valuing 2020 cap space, once we get to July 3rd, 2019, you know, maybe there's a chance that uh, there are more teams that are open to taking on, you know, like, Hey, give us a first round pick and we'll, we'll take on Noah, something like that. Maybe, right. maybe teams get into that space because that's a, that's a, a transaction that happens all the time in the NBA. So there are certain teams that are just amenable to that and can, can work with it. I'm thinking of maybe the Atlanta Hawks as an example here where. Incidentally, with Hardaway, of course, that they would just you know even if even if Hardaway would help them substantially more, maybe they don't care about getting help. And then the other reason why I think it's a good idea to wait with Noah is this just practicality point, which is that there are going to be a substantial number of teams that have cap space in the summer of twenty
4: nineteen. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. And, I was going there next.
1: <laughs> and if. And so what's going to happen on this is that teams are prizing that space right now. And, and justifiably so for the teams that actually have some real flexibility here. But the second the league year gets close to turning over, so really once the, once the regular season ends, arguably once we get deep in the playoffs, because trades can't happen with non-playoff teams during the playoffs, and this might actually be a year, depending on how, what Sacramento does, that that could really happen. But the challenge w- w- at that point for all these teams is going to be, oh crap, we're competing with 10 to 15 other teams, and while a portion of those are going to be saving that space for free agency. A portion of those are just probably, if they're honest with themselves, they're going to be sitting there going, we're going to do the, whatever is best for us. Atlanta is a really good example here. And Sacramento could be as well, depending on the pragmative nature of their front office, which, we, which, which is its own thing. But then those teams are going to lose a lot of leverage, and Courtney Lee's twelve point eight million for nineteen twenty is going to look a lot better. You know, there there will be free agents who who get better contracts than that, to be sure. But maybe a team saying they're going, well, we don't want to give, you know, all the, all those guys who took one year contracts this summer, they're going to be looking for three and four year deals. Mm-hmm. And so then Lee looks better, like Hardaway looks comparatively better, and Noah's contract. It's like, well, like this is exactly what happened with Jamal Crawford a year and a half ago. So with Jamal the Clippers needed to clear the space for Gallinari and I think that was like four or five days into free agency at that point the Hawks already knew well this is what we are we have this space we're not going to do a whole lot with it they were able to negotiate a buyout with Crawford and so actually that cut the price down a little bit too I could absolutely see that happening with Noah if the Knicks can be patient enough to wait all the way to next summer
4: yeah, I think all of those things are true. Plus, just the fact that so many teams are going to have 2019 cap space. I think I saw somewhere that as many as 15 teams will have 20 million or more in cap space. Um, not as many teams are going to have quite as much 2020 cap space. If the Knicks just let those, well, the the two contracts of Noah and Lee expire, and then we would assume that you know, in any rational world. Hardaway would pick up his nearly $19 million player option for the 2020, 21 season. Um, the Knicks would basically just have that contract. Chris Stapps probable max extension and rookie deals on their books. And they would go into the summer of 2020, assuming they don't sign anybody long-term next summer. Um, with double max cap space and more. And they would be one of, you know, the power players in that summer. It's not quite as star studded a free agency class as 2019, but when you're the lead dog in a free agency class, you can, you know, throw your weight around a little bit differently and potentially do, you know, different things. And again, cap space is not just allowed to be used on max players. You can, you know, extort teams for draft picks. You can make lopsided trades. You can do a lot of different things with your cap space. You can rent it out and acquire draft picks. You know, there are a lot more options that come from waiting as opposed to saying, we need to get rid of these deals now because we need to do something this summer. They've been preaching patience. They hired a coach who is very young and has been talking about you know, development and valuing the long term and that they're saying all the right things. And it'll be interesting to see how they balance you know, the, the clear desire they have to make a splash next summer in free agency because, you know, New York has been talked about for so long as Destination City, even though they haven't really gotten the Destination players. Pretty much every time they've gone into a summer with space, they have not come away with their first option. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens there. But, you know, balancing that desire while still allowing yourself to say, you know what, we're not going to get these guys this summer and it's fine if we wait another year. Not because we're tanking, but because we don't want to rush things and doom ourselves to four or five years of not really knowing what we're doing.
1: And the big threshold there is going to be a fascinating question of kind of like where okay so there are certain players who unambiguously if they say yes you take them I mean Kevin Durant's an obvious one Kyrie will have to talk about his like you would have to talk about the medical stuff but if that's clean of course he's a no brainer like oh there the, and there are a series of other guys depending on. But that gets into what I think is the most interesting and important story with the Knicks outside of Porzingis, and even maybe including him this year is that the Knicks' primary focus should be evaluation. Mm-hmm. They did an interest. I mean, they drafted players who I well, I wasn't low on Mitchell Robinson actually, like Mitchell Robinson for they got him, but like I wasn't as high on Kevin Knox, admittedly, in the draft process. But he looked very good in assembly. He had some signs that I really liked, and. Whether that ends up being totally legit, if that portends success to come, or if it doesn't, one of the most important elements of this next season is just figuring out what they have, not only in the rookies, the rookies are important, but also in guys... Like Frank Nilkina and knowing or having a much better idea of where those guys are in the timeline, that isn't necessarily a one year project. That could be, you know, another benefit of waiting until 2020 is by that point, I think the Knicks will have a pretty good idea of not only what Mitchell Robinson's kind of not maybe his end game, but where he'll be for another couple of years. But also, the other big question here is what position is Christoph Porzingis long term? Like, does this injury, uh, affect him enough I, I feel like Porzingis should be a center anyway I think it fits his defense yeah. better and everything to like me
4: that. I mean I'm with you there um To me, it's already clear he should be a center. I think, you know, we've seen he's one of the best rim protectors in the league, if not the best. Like last year, he had the best field goal percentage allowed with when he was within five feet of both the shooter and the basket among every single player in the league that challenged at least three shots a game. Like better than Rudy Gobert, better than Joel Embiid, better than everybody. And he's been in the top ten in that stat all three years of his career. He is one of the handful of best one protectors in the league, but I think we saw, you know, last year and the year before in particular, he really struggles at, you know, not going out on the perimeter and just guarding a guy straight up, but at doing that dance where he has to be on the perimeter guarding a guy like, say, Kevin Love, uh, you know, dart into the paint to help, get back out to recover on the shooter, and then contain that guy off the drive. I mean, it's, it's it's too much for a guy who is as tall and long as he is, and just having him near the basket is just so much more beneficial both for your defense, for his physical well-being, for everything, for the you know the the things that he is good at, it's just better. Uh, so to me, he is a center. And the longer you pretend that he isn't, you're sort of wasting time. Um, if he wants to play some power forward and you have some lineups where he does that, depending on who you put next to him, that's probably fine. I guess he's technically more of a four on offense anyway. I, realistically, he's more of like a three on offense, except he doesn't do quite as much off the dribble, just because he spends, I don't know, 90% of his time on the perimeter, whether it's in pick and pops or spotting up. Um, so, But sorry to interrupt you there. He is a center.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And so as a point of reference, you brought it up. So Porzingis defended 5.2 shots at the rim per game last year, which is pretty much in line with not, not with the most aggressive centers, but with, you know, players who especially bounce between the positions. So Embiid was at 5.8 last year. Davis was at 5.8. So like, uh, you know, you have, you have guys in that area. Now there are players, of course, higher than that Gobert is over six, but for a guy who is often list, who often plays next to another big man, that's a pretty impressive number. And as you said, Opponent shot 49.2% last year on those shots that he contested at the rim. Joel Embiid, 52-4, Davis, 53-8, Gobert, 55-2, Whiteside, 56-1, and so on and so forth. And th- that's going from lowest percentage up. There, there are right. certainly guys who do a lot worse. And, you know, certainly there, there is variance. I, I would, I don't know if anybody's done the statistical analysis of this yet of like who perpetuates and how much of that is just, you know, a couple guys missing layups or anything like that. But Porzingis, when you watch him, he is very good at contesting those shots. So <laughs> it may makes intuitive sense to me, and the idea of what position he is, that's a part of this story, but it it can be more fungible for forwards, but I'm interested in that in Kevin Knox, and so with Mm -hmm. forwards, really what you're looking at is two basic questions. One is, in the abstract, what position are they better at guarding? You know, like, threes and fours can have different skill sets in the modern NBA, they often do. And then that's one question is kind of like, you know, which skill set are they kind of better at? A little bit more ball handling, a little bit more pick and pop, that sort of thing, like navigating screens, communication, all that kind of stuff. But then the other part of that is can they handle tough assignments versus do they need to handle easier assignments? And so those two questions are going to be pivotal for Knox on the defensive end because that and, like, is the more kind of abstract easy starter quality question, because at a certain point, you are always evaluating players in terms of what makes sense around them, and supply dictates in certain circumstances, to be sure. But knowing what you have is exceedingly important to making the right decisions, both in the 2019 draft, 2019 free agency, and so on and so
4: forth. Absolutely. And Knox, I think it's pretty clear, is sort of like a combo forward type you know, at least offensively, you would hope that he could have the skill set of a three in terms of doing a little bit more off the dribble than a typical four man does. I kind of view it just from, you know, the limited exposure that I've had to him somewhat like early and mid-career Carmelo, where you want him to be a three on offense, but he's probably going to have to be a four on defense in order to not be a negative. You know, it's, it's certainly possible that he defends into a or turns into a better defender of threes than I think he can be right now. I think he's got some of the physical tools that are necessary there. I don't know that he has quite you know the lateral mobility to keep up with the best three men, but he's six nine with a seven foot wingspan. He's got you know pretty good but not elite athleticism. So the, some of the tools again are there to defend threes. Um, but I, I think it's going to wind up being where he has to defend fours. Maybe he disproves that. Maybe he turns into a guy that you know can defend both at an average level or better. I think that that's probably on the higher end of expectations for him. And you're going to be more average or a little bit better at fours, slightly below average or perhaps quite below average at threes. But even that, you know, if, if he turns into the kind of offensive player that it looked like he could be during summer league, that's still a very good player and probably a better one than I thought they had drafted just because, you know, he showed more, I think off the bounce and especially getting to the free throw line in summer league than I thought he might have. but something you brought up earlier in terms of the evaluation, not just rookies. Um, I think that this is where they missed a really big opportunity last season. Um, this, none of this is to say that Frank Nielakina should have started at point guard, should have played more minutes, anything like that. He wound up ranking fifth on the team in minutes, um, During the regular season, but he played only 32% or sorry, 35% of his minutes with Kristaps Porzingis before Kristaps got hurt, and he played only 37% of his minutes overall through the whole season with Tim Hardaway. That's just not enough, and I think it's clear that he was not put in position to succeed. Whether you think he's a point guard or an off guard, he did not play enough minutes with a the best player on the team and b a guy who has been shown to improve the performance of every point guard that he's plays with, played with throughout his career in Kristaps, and he did not play enough minutes with enough you know off the bounce creativity and shooting next to him in the backcourt he just and that i think that that's a failure of jeff warnacek and it's somewhat a failure of management that they didn't say this is something that needs to happen and we need this guy is important to our future and you know it's pretty clear we're not going much of anywhere and you know he's got certain skills that would be valuable like first of all he was clearly the best perimeter defender on the team so if you wanted to win games having him on the court more often probably would have helped plus it helps the team evaluate a player who's important to the future And and i think they really failed on that front last season
1: It also would have given him reps in a more relevant circumstance. And, you know, young players who are guards, even even if they end up being off guards primarily, are going to need some experience and comfortability running pick and pops, running pick and rolls Mm -hmm. with talented big men. I mean, that's just, that's where the game is going. And Mm -hmm. the Knicks had an opportunity. I'm assuming that they didn't expect it to be as short-lived as it was just because Porzingis is getting injured. But that's another v- benefit of trying things throughout the season, not just making it. Oh well, once we hit February, if we're out of it, then we'll start start playing the young guys. No, you need to make sure that you have it because you never know when a player is going to be available or unavailable. And it's very possible, I would say even likely, that Frank would have struggled during some of those stretches. But as oh, you said, yeah, the con- struggle, like. Yeah, the con the consequences of that were pretty minimal. The Knicks. Other than, you know, they had that misleading hot start. Like they, they even if and this is again defining success is an important thing here. It's like, okay, let's say the best case scenario after that run is they're gonna get like the six, seven, or eight seed. Like, let's say theoretically they believe that. It's like, okay, you know, that's a good thing, but they weren't gonna have a ton of cap space in twenty eighteen, no matter what happened. So they weren't really recruiting free agents. That wasn't necessarily going to be a springboard team because so much of this team has to turn over before the next big stuff happens. So I'm not going to knock a team most of the time for, you know, going for the playoffs because the playoffs, there, there are a bunch of different benefits for it and everything else. But when you are a young team that has a lot going on and that is the absolute rosiest of scenarios, we're not talking about, you know, like, oh, that's like more likely than not or anything like that. It was something that could have happened. Well, then you start to think about things a little bit differently and you go, well, 30, then it's the 38 versus 28 versus 22 win type of question again and for me you don't necessarily have to throw any young guy especially a young guard into the fire and say you're starting right away and anything like that but you want to make sure that you have enough information so that when the season ends you go well this is where he is right now not where he's going to be 10 years from now or anything like that but this is where he is right now and i'm not sure the knicks have enough information right now to do that even to say this is what frank nokina was last year if we're evaluating him for those purposes
4: Oh, I agree. And I also think, like, I don't know that you can reasonably argue that, like, we're going to play Kristaps with Jarrett Jack as his point guard most often is, like, the way that they should have been chasing the playoffs. Um, So I I think it sort of failed on that front as well. You know, I don't don't know that they – I don't think we know anything necessarily about what Frank is right now other than he can, you know, credibly defend both backcourt positions. But that's something that we kind of already knew coming into the draft. And I don't think we really got much information other than that throughout the entire year.
1: Yeah, and we didn't get to see much of him in summer league, though he did look very good defensively in the in the short mm-hmm. sample that we got. And this also all feeds in together with like Mitchell Robinson. Where Mitchell Robinson, you don't have the positional questions, though. With both him and Knox, Knox, of course, much more you wonder about in different defensive schemes how they're going to work. Like, is is Robinson going to be able to hedge? even do like the short lived like a Kemalajuan switch where you stand over with the guy for a couple seconds until you're until the point guard or whoever gets back. And with Knox, it's, you know, can, not, can he be good defending twos or ones, but can he do it enough to, you know, to, to tread water? It, the, right. those kind of threshold questions and they all fit together and sure there's a chance that Mitchell Robinson and Christoph Porzingis I think there's a very good chance they're both center not center only but pretty I mean Robinson I think is going to be center only but like that they're they're center primarily players and sure that's suboptimal you'd rather if Robinson ends up being as good as I hope that he can be you would want him to not play the same position as your best player but as long as he's good that's a, a problem that you can work with. That's something that right. you, can, you can go in a couple of different directions with it. Worst comes to worst, you can always move one of them or you could just have 48 good minutes of center. That works out fine as well. And- yep. So you need to evaluate those guys on their own merits, but also it's good to get a sense of how they fit into the greater whole. You know, I would like to see minutes with Knox and Robinson playing against the other team's best guys. And they're probably not going to swim right away, those guys, as a pairing against the best. Because the best players at the NBA are are incredible talents. A lot of them have much more experience. But it's just a snapshot. And as long as those guys have the right mentality about it, which they should, and that's part of what Fizdale is going to have to do, then at least you have that in the back of your mind for when Porzingis comes back, for when you're trying to sign guys in 2019, and most importantly in some ways, when you're making the decision, if the best guys don't say yes, between signing guys who are a little bit worse and waiting another
4: year. Right. And, you know, I, I, I do think that it's, it's important to let them make mistakes um, and be okay with the fact that that's going to happen. Like, they are young, they don't know necessarily what they're doing yet. And, and I think that a lot of Neil Aquina's hesitance last year came from the idea that if he made a mistake, especially offensively, Hornacek was just going to yank him off the court. And he let other guys play through mistakes, and he did not let Frank do the same. I think the Knicks have to recognize that Knox, and especially Robinson, who hasn't played in like over a year— are going to make mistakes and just be okay with it and teach them what they did wrong, tell them what they did wrong and how to fix it, but let them play through it and figure it out at the same time. Um, and, and within that, I think it's going to be interesting to watch what is Fisdale's defensive philosophy going to be and how does that fit into the kind of players in the roster? The Knicks defensive philosophy over the past, like ever has been, um, what's the word? Um, abominable. uh, uh haphazard, whatever you want to use, Um, they've not really had much of a defensive philosophy at all. And, you know, instilling that, they do have some guys that could be very good defenders. You know, Nilakina, I think, last year already showed he is going to defend at least two, probably three positions at a very high level for... A long time, just because of the combination of size, length, instincts, athleticism, um, not the kind of athleticism you normally associate with athleticism where, you know, he's jumping over guys, but, you know, functional athleticism in terms of the way he moves his feet, the way he, you know, uses his hands in passing lanes and defending guys on the ball. He is going to be quite a good defender on the perimeter. Robinson looks like he has the potential to be, you know, a real terror, you know, at least at the rim and potentially more than that. And then obviously Chris Stabs is a very good defender at, at the rim that's the basis of a pretty good defensive team if you can figure out the right way to use them. I don't necessarily know what that is yet, but it's something that they're going to have to work toward, you know, throughout not just this season, but, you know, a few seasons into the future as well.
1: That's a great point. And getting a sense of what scheme is going to make is going to fit this personnel is important also because of evaluating who you want to bring in on top of that. Because, you know, once you have a, a, a concept, for whether you want to switch a lot, what do you like what trapping, all those sorts of things. Then you can say, okay, well, we have this. This is how Kevin Knox fits into it for now. And and players can change. Players can improve. They can, you know, various things can happen over time. But it, it helps. And in certain circumstances, especially if it works, you can sell players on that. Like, hey, look, you're going to do really well with us. And we focus a lot on that offensively, but I'm sure it's true defensively as well. Lots more to talk about with Jared Dubin. But first, the message from Nate and Lightstream.
3: Getting into credit card debt is pretty rough, and I think the credit card companies rely a lot on the fact that maybe you're just not looking at what the interest rate is. Well, if you do look at it, it is a pretty rough APR. The average credit card interest rate is 18%. But you can hopefully lower that with LightScreen that offers credit card consolidation loans from 5.89% APR if you sign up for AutoPay. So, with Lightstream, you can get a loan between $5,000 and $100,000 and get your funds as soon as the day you apply. They believe that people with good credit deserve a great interest rate and no fees. And my listeners right now can get a special discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com capspace. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com capspace. Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.50 auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com capspace for more information. Let them know that slash capspace URL that you came from us.
1: We've spent some time on the rookies that the Knicks added, but the other pieces that changed over. And so Mm -hmm. that is really bringing in Hazonia and possibly Vonley, depending on if you know Vonley makes the team, and then losing Kylo Quinn, Michael Beasley, and Jarrett Jack primarily. I would say those, would you say those are the big ins and outs of this offseason?
4: Um, yeah, that's off the top of my head. The guys they lost, that's, you know, the most notable guys. I don't know that they were ever going to bring Jar- Jack back just because, you know, they traded for Moutier, they signed Trey Burke, they're getting Ron Baker back, who's sort of a, you know, half, I guess, combo guard. Um, And they have Frank, who they, you know, still don't really know whether he's a point guard or a shooting guard. Jack was never really going to return. Um, I don't know that Beasley was either. Oh, Quinn, there was a question. But those are certainly the most notable guys, yeah.
1: And I mean, it's it certainly also, I mean, once Mitchell Robinson came in, and, right. and I mean, the Knicks, and that's the most amazing thing about them is that even without, like, you and I both talked about Porzingis primarily being a center as, as our vision for him, even without your best player whose primary position is that, the Knicks are still have plenty of minutes at center. Even, like, they have so many minutes at center that they might not even need to have Noah Vonley in the roster. And I think Novonle is a talented player. Like, I would like to okay. see. See, so make the team like they just have a lot of a lot of guys that are capable there, and they also, if we count, when I would, Enes Kanter and Mitchell Robinson as center only players, mm-hmm. they have a lot of guys that can't really dance around right other spots. Lee actually can better than those guys, and I still would like to see him play more center.
4: Yeah, I think they have probably three guys that are strictly center only, and you can't play them at any other position. Uh, if you include Joaquin Noah canner uh, Robinson, and Noah. Theoretically, Luke Cornette can play next to another big man just because he can shoot and he's not really an interior defender anyway. He's more of like a I guess you would call him a stretch 5 if his shot actually goes in. We'll see. Um I know that they like that skill set from him. Um I don't know that he's necessarily going to make the team. I don't know that is going to make the, I mean that's already like just with those four guys and Bonley, that's five guys that can play center even before Chris Epps comes back. Um, And, you know, then... Vonley can play the four. Chris Epps can play the four. Cornette can potentially play the four. Box can play the four. Lance Thomas can play the four. Uh, Hazonia, theoretically, can play the four. He did a lot of it last year in Orlando. They have a lot of guys that can play front court minutes. Um, and Two of those guys are new. We, again, Hazonia will be on the team, I, I would imagine, throughout the season unless they decide to trade him mid-year. Vonley, we don't know what his situation is, but even without Kristaps like you said they have a lot of guys that can soak up minutes there i don't know necessarily that either of the guys that they brought in in the front court are long for the team um hazonia is on a one year deal um with you know no team option on the back of that I, if i'm remembering correctly that means they can only offer him 120% of his salary next year as a starting salary which gets you into like can't remember exactly how much he's making but it would be like 9 or 10 million um, so even if he's good, you're probably not going to bring him back. And then Bomley, um, I don't know, these, a front court of the future type guy. They're going to have Chris Stavis back at that point. They have Robinson, um, and, you know, Knox, I would imagine, is going to play some four as well. So those two guys, it's going to be interesting to see what they really want from them. Like, are they just filler as like guys you could take a look at and play some minutes in terms of, let's see how this type of player works with our other players in the team. Or are they guys like, you know, what is their plan for Hazonia that they signed into just a one-year deal? Um, that was something that I thought was interesting in a potentially good way in terms of if it's just they want to take a look at that kind of player and decided, hey, this is a guy that our GM knows and w- was involved in drafting, and, you know, we'll see what that looks like, or potentially bad interesting as... This is a guy they want, but didn't really do it the best way possible. And I know that's something you brought up as well in terms of not signing a guy for more than one year.
1: It is. And so the, the basic groundwork of this is that Hazonia is on a straight one year contract. That means that they can use what are called non bird rights to sign him for 120% at 6.5 million. That means they could sign him for up to 7.8 without using a different exception. So like the mid level or something like that.
4: Although they're going to be a cap space team, so they're not exactly.
1: So they would have to renounce him or figure out something like that. That's going to be a big problem. Big problem there. And I had Knicks fans like I was talking about the idea of how I thought this was mismanaged, and it was this basic idea, which is just because you don't want to take on taking on money in a future year and and avoiding that is a justifiable goal in certain circumstances. And this certainly the Knicks are in a circumstance to do that, but that doesn't preclude you from having an element on the nineteen twenty on your roster. A good example of this is Glenn Robinson the on Detroit. So Glenn Robinson, an inferior player to Hazonia last year, but some of that was because Robinson missed a bunch of time due to injury. What the what the Pistons did with him, it sounds like, is they gave him a little bit more money for this current season to give him a non-guarantee for the following year. And a non-guarantee or a team option, they could have structured this either way, What that, or even a non-guarantee team option, which you can do. That's actually what uh, TJ McConnell and a few others have. Is that what that allows you to do is it, it gives you a, kind of a backstop. And it's not only necessarily about keeping Hazonia, but it also gives you the possibility, like the Pacers had with a bunch of guys they signed last offseason, to move them or to do something right. else with them. And... They, you know, the Pacers ended up not really doing all, doing, they kept those guys because you, that's an option. Utah had a similar, similar decision after they lost Gordon Hayward and they had all this money last year. And so if his was unwilling to do that, if the offers were so strong from, I, I think I've heard the Portland was offering and a couple other teams. Well, if, if he has enough leverage to credibly say, I'm not going to do anything for that second year, well, then you say, good luck to you. And you go after someone else. Like the, right. the kind of VORP, the value over or if you want to do like Vora for Vorfa or something for value over replacement free agent for Hazonia, you know, it's meaningful. His skill set, I, I, you know, I'm the Archbishop of the Church of Hazonia for a reason. Like, I like what he can do, but he is not so special that those demands are worth acceding to. And as you talked about the personal connection could have been a factor and teams fall in love a lot they're they're very rarely you know that kind of ruthless pragmatism saying okay you know Hazonia, you're this and we like you but we could get somebody else who either has a more team-friendly contract or whatever we could maybe split up the mid-level whatever whatever way that wants to go teams get like i want this guy what can i do to make it happen and then they go oh well portland's offering me you know six million for one year they're not doing anything in the second year And you're like well crap we might as well just get this done that sort of thing happens and it's it's not like the stakes on this are so high that it's catastrophic or anything like that but
4: it's just not the best they could have done
1: right and I've talked at various points before about the idea that limited flexibility, limited team building tools can sometimes be a honing experience. A good example of this was what Maury did with Houston last year. Like after they got Chris Paul, they had a bunch of things they had to do on their roster because they traded so many guys to get Chris Paul. I mean, the totally worthwhile mm-hmm. trade, all that, but they had to, they had to solve a lot of problems. And all they basically had was the mid level, the biannual, and then a bunch of minimums. And so Maury. Went, okay, here are my priorities. What's the best thing I can do with that? And so it was a clarifying experience. You know, it's the idea of like, okay, if we know this is what we have, we, and we have to squeeze it, then at least we're going to be thinking about it in that frame the whole time. And that's what bothered me about what the Knicks did, is that they came into it knowing a couple of constraints, knowing, okay, we don't want to commit to money in 1920. And We don't know how good we're gonna be, so we wanna go in a couple different directions. And while Hazonia's far from a bad player, far from the worst thing they could have done with their mid-level, it's, it, it does feel a little bit, a little bit hollow, and hopefully he has a great year, it works out, everything like that, but... And it's very possible that what we're talking about is more in the abstract than anything else, because, you know, maybe the Knicks get a max guy or two next year and it didn't matter that that non-guarantee would have been declined. But you, for me, especially when you have a relatively new front office, process is very, very important because that's what you can use to guess what they're going to do moving forward.
4: Right. And that's something that, you know, the the process brings me back to sort of my opinion on the Hardaway contract last summer. Um, if you look at Hazonia, probably the best case scenario for this signing is that he outplays this six and a half million dollar contract and then you have to pay him next summer. And it's a similar thing with Hardaway where, you know, the absolute best case scenario for him on this four year, 71 million dollar deal is he is good enough over the first three years that he opts out and then you have to decide if you want to pay him again um and and, you know the likelihood of him being good enough to live up to the the first three years of that 71 million dollar deal um to me was low and that was just living up to it when you know in in the abstract the best thing you want to do is get surplus value on a deal and uh, the likelihood of that happening with hardaway seems uh incredibly low you know it's already underperformed the first year value of the deal when it's, when he was most likely to overperform it just based on the way that the contract is structured because it goes up by 5% every year. Um, so it's, you know, with Hazonia, the upside doesn't seem to benefit the Knicks all that much and benefits Hazonia a lot. Um, whereas, you know, in the, the most likely case scenario, they just get, you know, a guy who can probably play 20 or so minutes a night. Uh, for a year and like that's fine it's just you know not necessarily want the best way to use your mid-level exception you know that said it's you know a worthwhile shot to see what he is um i don't know that there were necessarily any better shots that they could have taken with that money um it just seems like they, they could have structured it in a way that was more advantageous for the team rather than the player not that not that it's a big deal like you said
1: Nate put together a really good outline on all of these teams and we don't, we haven't really followed it necessarily so far, but I want to go through <laughs> some of those questions. And so one of them is just who on this team do you expect to have a better year and maybe who's going to have a worse year than 2017-18?
4: Um, so I think just by virtue of being put in better position to succeed and having had a full summer, uh, to work where he wasn't hurt like he was last year that Frank Neil will be better. This year, um, I think that just based on the, um, the physical developments that he's made, that he's going to be better defensively even that he was last year, um, and and potentially, uh, defend threes a little bit more often and better than he did last year. And being able to defend three positions credibly is obviously better than being able to do it with two. Um, I think his shot will be a little bit better. I said next to his, uh, Trainer Chris Brickley had a couple of games last season and one of the things that they're working on throughout this summer is being balanced when he pulls up for that jumper, which is like the biggest, the single biggest problem he had offensively other than just natural aggressiveness last year was being out of balance when he took a shot and I'm going to be very interested to watch that. So he's someone I think will get better. Um, I think even though I don't necessarily expect him to be um a positive value player based on his contract or necessarily overall i think hardaway will be better this year just because he's unlikely to have as prolonged a shooting slump as he did last year like those kind of slumps just don't happen all that often um, and if he adds to his game that's good too um damian dotson is someone who i know you guys have talked about on the podcast a little bit when you've done your your prospect uh evaluations I think that if he gets on the court, he's going to be better than he was last year. He didn't shoot very well uh, when he was on the floor last year, and I think he's shown himself both in college and in his two summer league stints To be, you know, at least a passable shooter. So if he gets on the floor, I think he should be better as well. And then, like, it's just hard for Emmanuel Moutier to be worse. So maybe he'll get better. Uh, You know, guys that should be worse. Uh, Courtney Lee, aging makes you worse. He's, I think, 32 now, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, You can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Lance Thomas, also getting up there in age, has dealt with injuries over the past few years. Uh, probably won't be quite as good. Ennis Cantor seems incredibly unlikely to set a career high in field goal percentage again. Uh, without KP to play off of, I don't think we'll necessarily have as much success inside either. Um, unless you think that Trey Burke is a better pull-up shooter on higher permanent volume than Steph Curry, that dude is definitely getting worse this year. Oh. Um, that is going to happen. Um, and then I think Chris Stapps, when he plays just because of the injury, will not be quite as good as he was last year just because it takes time to get back to being yourself um so that's where i'm at I'm, I'm curious if you disagree with any of those assessments
1: i i do not particularly as a lance thomas believer i would love to see him be better than he was last year because i, was yeah, very I disappointed. love lance too it's but just you're, you're right that there's a, a distinct chance that this is just you know who he is at this point in his career i mean i think he this is going to be his age 30 season so i mean that's generally a time that like guys you know if they haven't kind of figured it out by that point it's it's unlikely and with canner I'm Lance,
4: be- just quickly, Lance has just dealt with so many physical ailments yeah. over the last couple of years, too, that have sort of deteriorated the things that he does best. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Courtney Lee, by the way, is 32 now, but will be 33 by the time the season starts.
1: Yeah, yeah, so this will be his age 33 season. And so with Kanner, I could see his PER going up because PER is about kind of the, the volume and then efficiency on top of it. Because I could see his usage going way up on this team. Because they're just Christoph Porzingis isn't going to be there as much, and so Ennis Canner is their best offensive player, and typically a team's best offensive player gets a lot of touches, at least per minute, and however many minutes he plays, that'll be a question with Mitchell Robinson and everything else. Mm-hmm. And so I could see, but I don't define a player having a better or worse season by per. So I would right. say, you know, that he'll he'll probably have kind of a worse season by what I'm considering. Though I am going to also be interested in how he looks defensively. Can Fisdale bring maybe a little bit more out of him? Not that you know. I mean, Caner has played for capable defensive coaches in his past. He, he still sucked on defense. So right. the, the, that. But sometimes a different voice can help help you reach out. Maybe they'll do a system that is more in tune with what with what makes sense with Caner's skill set. Something like that. Dotson's an interesting one. I also am going to be fascinated to see how many minutes Fizdale right. gives him. Like, I would like to see Dotson get meaningful time on this team, especially because their guard rotation, especially if Moutier is, you know, if he ends up not being a part of the Knicks' future for a couple of different reasons, one of them being his absolutely gargantuan cap hold. That, like, I mean, maybe you could come to an agreement right away. I mean, they'll, give, I think they'll give Moutier chances. But going through that is, and Dotson, you know, he's more of a, I, I use the term swingman for, for twos and threes, so basically guys mm-hmm. that are perimeter guys that aren't ones. And the Knicks, you know, you talked about all the fours and all the guys who are fives who can play four. The two, they have players, certainly, depending on how we see Hardaway, but I think they can carve out a role for Dotson. I would like to see them do that
4: because... Yeah, he is one of the few guys on the roster that I think really has the capability to play, like, you know, you call him swingman, like, I will go, like, small wing for two-slash-threes and big wing for three-slash-fours. Dotson is really the only guy on the run, I guess, Hazonia, too, that can potentially play both small wing and big wing roles. Yeah, um, you know, I like they, him they, better they as a
1: small wing, but he could, he, you know, if he had to have it. And that could be more of, like, him fitting in a switch system would be a good example of that.
4: Right, but, you know, they, they have very few guys on the team, I think, that can credibly play the three. Like, you know, Knox is, I think, going to start there. Who knows? Maybe they'll wind up starting Hardaway and Lee next to each other, um, like they did for a lot of last year. Neither one of those guys is really a three. Lance Thomas is more of a four at this point. Frank is a one-two. Baker is a one-two. Obviously, Burke and Moutier are point guards. Um, they don't really have guys that are natural threes. Um, Dotson, like you said, is a, is a two-three type, but at least he can credibly do it Incredibly, defend some bigger wings. Not like the LeBron types, obviously, because Dotson, I think, is like 220 pounds, and LeBron probably has 50-60 pounds on him at this point. But, you know, at, at, oh, Dotton's only 210, uh, maybe put on some weight. But they, they do need guys that can credibly play the three, and I think he's one of them on the roster. Um, and they don't have that many.
1: So then another thing, I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on this because the Knicks are talked about so much, but are there any players in this team that you think the popular perception on them is off, whether that be that the player is actually worse or that the player is actually better? Maybe they're under,
4: underappreciated? Um, yes. Uh, I think that Courtney Lee is probably a little bit better than people think. A lot of people think like he's just a standstill shooter who can defend a little bit. I think he's a little bit more than that on both sides. I think he's a very credible defender of guys, uh, especially off the ball, that move around a lot and, de- and deal with a lot of screens. That's a skill set that I think that he has that not a lot of players in the league are very good at. He can credibly defend some point guards as well. And he doesn't do a lot of it because he tends to be a little bit more passive than a lot of his coaches would like. But he can do a couple of things off the bounce, whether it's, you know, not necessarily as a secondary pick-and-roll man, but attack a closeout, take a dribble in or to the side, and, you know, get himself a little bit more free, or take a dribble in or to the side and make a pass. There's a little bit more offensive skill there than I think people think that he has. Um, I think that Frank is... Probably a little bit better than the league-wide consensus and probably a little bit worse than the diehard Nick fan consensus, if that makes sense. Um, just because he was so unbelievably good defensively, not just for a rookie but for, like, anybody last year. And that's a really crazy thing for a rookie to be. So I think that that makes him, like, a credible player, sort of no matter what. Um, but the the offense has really a long way to go um from last year to where it's, you know, obviously it's an even longer way to go to be a starting caliber player at either backcourt spot, um, but to be a rotation-level player at either backcourt spot. I think the offense has to progress, obviously, from where it was last year as well. Um And then just... Guys that are worse than the popular consensus, I mean, if we're limiting the consensus to Knicks fans, like Trey Burke is a lot worse than people think. Um, They seem to think that he's like a definite starting point guard and, you know, needs to be getting a ton of minutes. I mean, he is not going to shoot Steph Curry percentages and volume on pull-up jumpers again. Like, that is just not going to happen. Steph Curry is the best shooter ever, one of the best players ever, and Trey Burke is, like, not. Um, <laughs> that's definitely one. Um, and then, you know, I think depending on your perspective, KP is either better or worse than you think. I think he is better defensively than people think and worse offensively in terms of holistic skill set and at staying healthy and sustaining production over more than like seven weeks.
1: Yeah. And I think with Porzingis, there's also a possibility offensively that just being used properly and having the right mm-hmm. surrounding talent will, will do that. But I agree with you that what we have seen so far, like his, his game to game production, kind of in that sense of like being, being a, a linchpin of an offense is a little bit different, especially with the health issues and, and some of the things that come and go, but defensively, I agree with you that he is underappreciated and, and, can do more even, I think, than, than he has been asked to do so far. And, yeah, I, I'm wondering with this team like where those questions will be next year because I could imagine that a couple of these players, just like kind of like Trey Burke did this year, maybe not to that extent, will have years that get either the fan base or the NBA really riled up and we'll see whether that is sustainable or not. Happens a lot with teams that play young guys, just the samples and everything else like that. And I, I want to be excited, and some of them will, will probably look worse than, than you'd expect. And something that I find just so intriguing about this Knicks team is the prospect that very few guys on this squad are going to be there long term. Which is mm-hmm. just—it's so unusual because you have like so you have these veterans who are signed for multiple years, like Noah is a good example, and and to an extent Cordile as well, where it's like basically you're just running out the clock at this point. And then you have young guys who aren't as good as those players for the most part. Well, maybe they're better than... No. Well, I, I think Noah still have, may, might have something in the tank if he's taking care of himself, and I don't know if he is, but if he's taking care of himself, he still has something else. And so you have to reconcile, as Fisdale, how how to do this, because not only is it evaluating these young players, and but you want to put the players who are more important in a position to succeed. So you don't necessarily want to go just full youth movement, because if you go full youth movement, then you're not necessarily getting the best evaluation prism for Nokina for Mitchell Robinson. So squaring this circle in terms of evaluation and and calibration is going to be exceedingly
4: important. Absolutely. And, you know, just to your point, they have, I think, 16 guys or 17 guys right now that they have under some sort of contract they're going to have to cut down by the start of the season. Or no, sorry, 16 guys. Um, I would say that there are three that I can absolutely guarantee will be on the roster for the 2019-20 season. That's not a lot. Um, You know, there's a lot of things that are in play. Those three, by the way, are Chris Stapps, Kevin Knox, and Mitchell Robinson. Um, Like, I I think that there's a a very good chance that Frank is still on the roster by then, but not 100%. I think there's a very good chance Hardaway is still on the roster by then, but not 100%. You know, same thing with a couple of other guys. Um, Like, Or actually, no, not joking. No, like, he will be gone by the start of next season one way or the other. Um, But... You know, that's, again, that's a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, especially when your best player is going to be out for the whole year, figuring out the way guys fit together, I think is going to be, you know, a little bit, it's, it's going to be difficult just because you don't know how they're going to all fit around like the guy that's going to be the centerpiece of the team in the future. And that's an important thing to know as you're going into, you know, a big free agency year into a year where you're likely going to have, you know, another, not necessarily top of the draft draft pick, but pretty close to it. And you need to know what sort of skills you need around him there. Um, you know, it's, it's really important and they, they don't have a lot of information now. And I don't know how much useful information they're going to get about how guys fit with their best player, you know, th- and that's why I think it's really important to, See a lot of minutes this year where Knox plays with Milakina and, you know, and with Hardaway and to a lesser extent, just because he's a little bit more of a project with Robinson. Like those guys need to play together a bunch so you can at least figure out what they look like together. And, you know, for as long as Chris Stapps is back, you can see what they look like with him, too.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. And and another guy, like we brought up Pisoni before, how does he fit into this? Because he's mm-hmm. an intriguing player, a player. They spent significant money on him, and, and that was the mid-level was their best non-draft resource. But he's only on a one-year contract, and it would be very surprising to see him back because of the unusual structure with his cap hold and everything like that, unless they can come to a really, really fast agreement and they don't need the kind of space that it, they might. And so like, how how does Fizdale reconcile that? Does, does that mean he plays the West? But part of the reason Hezoni might get more minutes is because he, especially if he's bringing four spacing and power forward, which they have, as we've mentioned, a lot of other guys that can do that, it makes it easier to figure out, okay, how good is Frank as a driver or anything like that because offensively, Hazonia—not defensively. Offensively, Hazonia is closer to maybe what you want from a four long-term than the other guys they have on roster. And so playing somebody who, even if it's not going to be that human being, is going to be somebody maybe somewhat similar— That's a useful piece in terms of evaluation because the floor spacing, how the lanes are going to be structured, that makes it easier to evaluate what Dotson can do, what, of course, what Frank can do. And so I wonder if they're going to go kind of full in on that, on that sort of mode or just tone it back and say, well, you know, Kevin Knox is probably going to be that guy eventually. So let's, let's put Kevin Knox there now.
4: That's something that I brought up a couple of years ago when they signed Derrick Rose, where there were people bringing up the possibility that they would sign him long term the summer after. Which I I mean, I was staunchly against acquiring him in the first place, just because I you know didn't think he was very good anymore. I think that bore itself out over his time with the Knicks, his time with the Cavs, his time with the Wolves, um, and you know anywhere else that he's going to go. I brought up the idea of using him as sort of a test drive for what that style of attacking point guard would look like with Chris Stapps, with Carmelo, with, you know, everybody else that was on the team at that time. And I thought that that from that perspective, I could see it somewhat making sense, um, but that they, you know, even if that was the idea, which I don't think it was for them, that they still paid too high a price to do it because Rose was a ne- negative value asset and they gave things up to get him um, and then signed Joakim Noah. but. I do think that that makes sense for Hazonia, too, if it's sort of like a test drive for what that kind of player will look like next to, you know, whoever they decide their core guys are. And, you know, for that reason, like, he can at least soak up minutes there. Like, I wouldn't be surprised to see him get 25 minutes a game. And, you know, maybe he'll look differently um, in a, not necessarily a system, but in an environment where... There's more belief in him and his skill set than there obviously was in Orlando by the end.
1: Yeah, I could absolutely see that depending on, on how this season goes. Still have a couple of big topics to talk about with Jared Dubin. But first, a message from our friends at Mott & Bo. I
3: remember I was looking around, wanted to try to find a great pair of jeans for myself and my wife to wear on our honeymoon. And the jeans market, eh, it's not really that great. If you're going into stores, it's like $200 for a pair of jeans, which seems pretty ridiculous. And they're not even comfortable. But now with Mott & Bow, that's changed. These are the most comfortable premium jeans you'll ever wear for just $100. They've got dynamic stretch technology, which helps you be comfortable even while your jeans look good. And they source their denim from the most well-respected mills in the world. You can get yours only at MottAndBow.com. That's M-O-T-T and bow, With their at-home try-on program, you can even request a second pair to try on with your order. Then you send the other pair back in the same prepaid box. So if you're not sure exactly what size they have is going to fit you, you can request it, a couple of them and then send it back in, in that prepaid box. A lot of companies don't want to make returns as easy. And in September, you can save 20% on everything at mottandbow.com slash capspace via their September savings event Use that slash Capspace URL uh, to let them know that you came from us. That's mottandbow.com slash Capspace for 20% off everything. This is their best deal anywhere, but it's only for the month of September. Once again, mottandbow.com slash Capspace. Get that 20% savings. And of course, let them know that you came from us. So that slash Capspace URL
1: question that we should talk about what do you think is the best five-man lineup for this team and what five-man lineup do you
4: most want to see this season um i mean are we talking when chris is healthy or before that let's do let's
1: do when he's healthy because that's just more interesting and less depressing
4: yeah because i was gonna like for most of the season they're not going to have their best lineup on the floor um it's just not going to happen just because he's not going to be there um you know, in terms of the best lineup, I would say probably... Oh, man, it's re- it's really tough because I can't decide if I want to have Frank at the point or off the ball. In terms of the best lineup, I, I would probably say playing him off the ball next to Trey Burke in the backcourt. And then probably, it would be a t- I-, I guess, Hardaway, just so you have a little bit more offensive creativity. Um, Knox at the four and Chris Stapps would be their best lineup, and the lineup that I would most want to see would probably be that one, but with – or I guess Frank Hardaway Knox – Chris Stapps and Robinson
1: that would be fun and it's it's hilarious that you can because of the way the next roster works about how like they're what are their best shooters if not their absolute best shooter is a big man that it, it mm-hmm. kind of changes the way you think about some of these lineups because usually when you shift down that means you're taking a, a downgrade offensively and I still think overall a bit, Mitchell Robinson's offensive rebounding if that's anything like summer league then that opens things oh, up yeah.
4: too and but just it, the shot blocking like it, if he blocks shots like anything like he did in summer league I mean I don't know that people are going to want to come in within like six feet of the paint with him and Kristaps on the floor together.
1: Yeah, I would love to see those two guys play together. And yeah, and then you yeah, Frank, I would probably in that circumstance, yeah, go F- Frank Lee Hardaway, just because then you have a little bit. But I could see Burke being fine. There are a lot of different ways that you could structure that. And, oh, and oh, and of course Knox. I forgot about yeah. So yeah, right. Knox would be at the three. Oof. Yeah. So Frank Hardaway, then maybe.
4: Yeah, Frank Hardaway Knox. Kristaps and Robinson. Uh, I don't know that Robinson would be in their best lineup just because there's so much that he's going to have to. Yeah, I, I agree with learn defensively and then. Also, well, and
1: like, it's worth, it's worth noting, wise, like, like Ennis Canner is a remarkably good offensive player. You know, like, mm-hmm. and it, he's defensively there are, there are limitations, but it's like, you know, if we're, if we're talking like just overall quality, but I, I will, I'm a big proponent for center defense. That's why Porzingis is so intriguing to me is that he is, his sold as an offensive player, but he's more defensively capable than many things.
4: Absolutely. And like stretch center is a really good archetype to be, especially when, you know, you have, inner our circle, best interior defender in the league capability on defense. Um, that's, that's a very good kind of player.
1: So we can do this, this pretty quickly as well. What do you think are the strengths and weaknesses of this team?
4: Um, weaknesses, I would say without KP and if Robinson can't get on the floor yet, then definitely interior defense. Like they're going to have probably Cantor and either like Knox or Hazonia starting in the front court. And that's just not a recipe for good interior defense, like unless Joe Noah is like 2012 Joe Noah again, they're, I think, going to struggle to protect the rim early on. Um, they don't have a lot of off-the-bounce creativity in terms of either individual shot creation or creating shots for others. Um, you know, Knox flashed a little bit of that, in, or a lot more of that than I thought he had in summer league, especially in terms of his ability to get to the free throw line which is really, really important, especially for somebody who's going to play a lot next to Chris Stapps, who for as high volume a player he is, doesn't get to the line a lot because of how much time he spends on the perimeter. Um, so, so that's something that I think is going to be really important for them. But like after that, their best guys at creating off the bounce are Hardaway, who's more of a secondary creator and Trey Burke, who again is not Steph Curry. Um, so that, that, that's going to be a weakness. Um, all of those things. And I think it's just a poor passing roster in general, like, Hardaway is a below average passer. Lee is like vaguely average for his position. Um, Knox was a below average passer in college. Hazonia is not a very good passer. Cantor may or may not actually know how to pass. I don't think I've ever seen Robinson throw a pass uh Kristaps is a below average passer. Uh Moutier is maybe like the best passer on the roster if you don't count Noah and that's not good. Uh Frank I think showed some passing vision in the open court but wasn't aggressive enough to open passing lanes for himself in the half court. So I think just you know in general that's going to be a weakness of the team and it's one that sort of concerns me for the future if they want to play you know this free flowing movement style of offense they need to get guys that know how to pass um you know strengths wise I think that there is a lot of functional athleticism on the team again Frank is a really good athlete in a much different way than you think Mitchell Robinson is a preposterous athlete and I think Knox showed in summer league that he's got more functional athleticism especially offensively but also a little bit defensively than people might have thought Um, uh, still is an unbelievable athlete even though Vonley is a good athlete Hazonia is a good athlete Um, Chris Stapps has a lot of functional athleticism for the kind of things that he needs to do when he's on the court. Um, And just length within that as well. Frank is super long. Knox has a seven-foot wingspan. Robinson's arms, like, they stretch from one side of the garden to the other. Uh, Hazonia has pretty long arms. Vonley. They got a lot of length on the roster. So athleticism and length, which this is the first time you could say that about a Knicks team in, I don't know, ever. Like, even the 90s teams were not, like, long and athletic. You know, So it's it's been quite a while since they've had that, that kind of strength on the team, I think.
1: Agreed. And something I want to see with a lot of these guys is whether they have lateral agility or whether it's more straight line speed. Like mm. Those are two very different things, depending on the player. Some guys are good at both, of course. But I want to say right. that. Like I'm happy. Frank
4: has both. We don't yes. know about Knox right. or Robinson.
1: Right. And and so moving your feet. And, and that will dictate portions of the ideal defensive system for them. I mean, there are a lot of mm. different considerations there. But that is a, a pretty big one. And I like that you brought up Passing. I think that's a big concern. What I thought of as, as two big concerns there are kind of what I, I call it seam creation. And so what seam creation is for me is that's creating the initial puncture in a defense. Right. And then and then you can work from that. I think the Knicks actually have an underappreciated collection of players that can take advantage of a, an advantage that is created. They just mm-hmm. don't have a ton of guys that can create the advantage. And right. that's, like, that's my biggest we, concern. We talked about, about
4: it with Lee before. Like, Courtney Lee can be closeouts when given the opportunity. Hardaway, his best skill might be beating closeouts. Um, Kevin Knox can do it too. Um, They have guys that can do that, but if your best opportunity to create those opportunities is, you know, Trey Burke, Moodyer, and to a lesser extent, Nilakina. They're not going to have a whole lot of opportunity to do that probably.
1: Right. And so that might end up leading them. The Knicks teams that get into that circumstance can, can really benefit from when they get a higher end player. Like an example for me with this is the, the Pacers with when Oladipo became what none of us really saw coming. Mm-hmm. That opened up a lot of their offense because they had players, even at point guard, like I, I would consider Jaron Collison a player like this as well at this point in his career and pretty much his whole career. Miles Turner, same thing. Thad Young. Like, all those type of guys. I could see the Knicks... Having a real big improvement offensively, not only due to age related improvements, but also to having that player that can create those teams, whether that is somebody they sign in for agency, somebody they draft, or even potentially both, depending on how all of this works out over the next couple of years. But that is going to be a problem this year. And a lot of times those, those offenses look a lot worse because you're sitting there going, they should be better. It's not, you know, the teams where you just, you know, there's no chance. Like that happens, you know, like those garbage time Suns teams at the end of last year, especially when right. Stephen Booker stop playing like all those sorts of things that happens but this is something altogether different like the magic were like that a little bit of last year too mm-hmm. and it, it became very frustrating to watch them offensively
4: uh, i also think they could benefit offensively just like from naturally better shot selection yes like if, if they're not the highest volume mid-range team in the league by far they should benefit offensively, even if they don't, like, even if Chris Epps is not on the floor, just by taking better shots, their offense should get at least a little bit better. Like, I, I still don't think it's going to be all that good, just because, again, they're missing their best player. Teams without their best player, their offense gets worse, and the Knicks' offense was already pretty bad last year. Um, They, they should just benefit from running a more beneficial, modern offense, which one of the few things we've seen from Fisdale, one of the things he did in Memphis immediately was improve their shot selection. So I think he should do the same for the Knicks. And I think you've already seen like he got Marc Gasol to start taking threes for the first time in his career. and uh, Kanter is not going to make all of them like he did in his video at the training facility. Uh, but if he takes two or three of them as opposed to 18 footers that's a benefit even though he's probably not going to be very good at them you know that's a benefit
1: it is let's move on to what in many of these is fun but in oh actually before we do predictions let's do what are the key questions that you expect to see answered and you want to see answered this season for the (sighs) Knicks.
4: Expect to see answer, I think, is a little bit different. But, you know, the the one that I want to see, like the single most important question for this year and the future of the franchise is when will Kristaps get healthy? What does that player look like when he comes back? Can he stay healthy long term? And is the left side of his body Fixed. All of his lower body injuries have been on the left side of his body. I wrote about this when he was a rookie, when he had a series of minor injuries on the left side of his body. Um, I talked to him about it, and he said he wasn't concerned about it yet because they had all been minor injuries. And I talked to Jeff Stotts, who runs the you know the great uh, injury blog. Uh, in street clothes, and he said, "Well, yeah, it's not that big a concern because they've all been minor, but there's clearly something wrong with the kinetic chain here, and you know, a major injury could be coming." Two years later, it did. Uh, they absolutely need to fix whatever is going on on the left side of Chris App's body, and hope that he can then stay healthy over the long term. To me, that is the single biggest question, and if that doesn't happen, really, not much else matters because uh, he is the future of the team, and is a major important part of it, no matter who they sign next summer, whether they sign somebody at all. Like, let's be honest, he's going to get a max contract, uh, whether it's they decide to give it to him during this year or they do it next summer while maintaining a little bit more cap space due to his lower cap hold. Like, he's obviously incredibly important. Um, you know, other questions, like, what is Kevin Knox? Like, was the, the three-level scoring that he showed during summer league real? How much of it is real and what's the best way to use him? Not just position wise, but in terms of, you know, schematically how to use him as a basketball player on offense. Like, should he have the ball in his hands a lot? Should he be running off screens? They ran him off screens a ton at Kentucky. Some of that worked, some of that didn't. You know, does he have a post-up game at all? You know, what are the best ways to maximize his offensive skill set? And, you know, what position should he be guarding? Um, and then is Frank a point guard? and or a starter, Um, that's pretty important. I I think if if he's a passable point guard, I think that's the best case scenario for them because that allows you to get a little bit more... um, shooting and size on the court at the same time because he's six five and can guard either position, and you can put, you know, another shooter next to him that is not small. Um And then, obviously, if he's a starter, you know, then you did not take a bench player with the number not, uh, nine pick in the draft, so that's good, too. And then, you know, just tangentially, like, are Hardaway and Lee being dumped for cap space between now and next summer? And if so, how are you accomplishing that?
1: Yeah, along those lines, I fully agree with all the earlier stuff, but where are the Knicks, that that trio of Lee, Noah, and Hardaway? Not only what do they do this year, but are they in a position where they have to Use assets to unload one, two, or all three of those guys. I think that's going to be really important. And I mean, it might just be very fun- difficult, never functionally impossible because that's not the way the NBA works. But to, to, if they get the double max guys, like there, there are some worst case scenarios where it takes m- something to move off of basically all of those guys. I don't expect mm-hmm. that to be the case, but it's possible. And right. Frank is a really good point. And with Mitchell Robinson, I think that, you know, with, with his recent history, it, it i mean obviously if he stepped into being you know like if he if he shows starter potential or star potential that is something important but i'm not putting too much on him this year i mean just just because of the way everything has gone i mean attends western kentucky for like 2 weeks and then <laughs> is, is working out and everything and while he looked really good in summer league young big men we talk about it all the time with young point guards but young big men can take some time too especially when they have defensive potential because they just have to learn the game a lot and he's going to have to do a lot of growing there, especially because Robinson did not play a ton of international ball either. So he's just going to have to get used to playing against NBA caliber athletes and all of the elements of traveling and everything like that. So I'm not going to define this season with Mitchell Robinson very much, though he can make that a positive by exceeding, by exceeding that standard, which he certainly
4: can. And I mean, that's like, That's why I didn't even bring him up. I don't know that it's a question that is even for this season. It seems like a little bit more of a longer term kind of thing where it's going to be answered over the course of multiple seasons. And that's, I think, both that's like fine and good that that is the case. You don't need him to be whatever he's going to be right away because you took him knowing that the reason he was still there was because it might take him a while and because you don't really know what he is because of the way that his quote-unquote college career went.
1: Let's move on to predictions now. The Knicks are, well, I guess they're difficult in certain ways and not as difficult in other ways. So I mean, I, I, I think we could do all three kind of in the same shot. But so what you expect, so like predicted record and then best best case, and this isn't like absolute, they hit 90% of their threes or anything like that, but like reasonable best case and reasonable worst case.
4: Yeah, I I, I kind of want to start with the reasonable best and worst first and then go to the prediction just because I think they both sort of inform why I'm predicting the record I'm predicting. Um, so the the reasonable best case to me, and, you know, I'll, I'll go through how we get there, is, you know, Porzingis comes back early, like in December, like they say. Knox is as good in the regular season as he looked in summer league. Robinson contributes, you know, at least at a passable level right away, whether it's, you know, for 10, 12 minutes or whatever it is. Frank is an all-defense level guard, which I think he showed the potential to be, I don't know, right away. But let's say he makes that jump. And and, and Hardaway takes a little bit of a step forward as well. I I think if all of those things happen, they can get to like 34, 35 wins. 35 and 47, something like that would probably be the maxed out uh, scenario on that. Just because like without KP early, they're going to struggle. And let's say he comes back and they play like slightly below 500 ball for the rest of the season, that gets you to around, you know, 34, 35 wins. Um, you know, worst realistic case is, you know, Chris has, has a setback and he's out all year. Um, Dolan has mentioned it already. Clyde Fraser has mentioned it already. Um, you know, and along with that, Trey Burke takes the step back that I think he's going to take and more. Frank doesn't necessarily emerge as a a point guard or a starter. Knox struggles as the focus of the deep of the opposing defense and, you know, Cantor, Hazonia and everybody else sort of torpedo the defense. And, you know, I think in that case scenario, like not outlandish, like they could win like 15 games or something like that. So to me, I tried to like, split the difference there and with my projection went with um, 28 and 54 um, just because that seems like not a big downturn from last year but they actually already underperformed their point differential last season by three wins so this is I think I predicted a five win drop from last year um, so I think that that sort of makes sense and I think even 28 is probably pretty high just because I can easily see Chris Stapps coming back like at the end of February or something um, and I probably should have gone with, like, 26 or 27.
1: I'm going with 27. And the the reason for it is I think the Knicks are a better team than that. But there is a general understanding in the NBA that gravity pulls teams that are outside of the playoffs down a little bit. I think of this squad, if Porzingis, like uh, Pelton in his estimates, he had Pelt, uh, Porzingis playing half the season. I think that's fine. You know, I think it's going to be a little bit less than that.
4: But Yeah, I that, think that's aggressive.
1: Yeah, so, like, let's say it's 35. You know, I think I think they can be... They can be a better team than that, maybe low 30s or something like that, but usually teams don't win in the low 30s because there isn't really a reason to win in the low 30s. And even some of the teams that were in the high 20s last year probably shouldn't, like Chicago, for example. Chicago should probably should have been in the mid to low 20s last year, but they won a couple of close games. They had that weird run with Miritich and everything like that. So I think 27 is a reasonable kind of hedge on that, that they could be a little better. My best case and worst case... Well, my best case is pretty close to you. My worst case is actually a little bit better than than yours. But so best case for me is, yeah, mid 30s, 34 is probably the number I would do there. And... Maybe you could push a little higher if Porzingis comes back even earlier if some of these guys deliver, but that's why it's reasonable best case for me. Like, I could see, there are circumstances where I could see them winning in the high thirties, but that's not my reasonable best case and worst case. I mean, I think that they're not as just... Dreadful as some of the the worst teams have been in the league. Like for example, like Sacramento last year, they were outscored per cleaning the glasses, so that fil- filters out some of garbage time. Seven, they were negative seven point seven net rating, so that was a twenty two win team. Like I, it's hard for me to imagine the Knicks being that much worse. They could be worse than that, but I don't see them being like a fifteen win team. But it is you know, like I understand where you're coming from with it, but I think it's more in the low twenties rather than the mid to high teens.
4: Yeah, my thing, like if Chris Dabbs- has a setback and like they know that he's not playing at all and they get you know very aggressive of, about playing the young guys and they're also not oh, good
1: yeah and that's the other the other interesting question there is because of the idea that i don't think they're going to get out of their older guys during the year like with during this season i think they'll try to do it next off season. but yeah, like, i think we...
4: it, in that scenario it would probably depend when that setback for chris Stapps comes mm-hmm. it, let's say it comes in october and they know he's going to be out for the year. That's a little bit different yeah. than if it comes like he's gearing up to come back in early January and has a setback in late December. You know, that's a little bit different, I think.
1: Yeah, and, and the other challenge with it, part of the reason why I said they're probably not going to trade their veterans is just because I don't think teams, the the potential trade partners are going to be willing to take on long-term salary
4: early on And this. I, I, I just don't see, oh, yeah. it t- I don't I didn't mean right. by the way, trading the veterans. I just meant toward pivoting. That, like, yeah, I agree. The
1: yeah, and that certainly is possible. But I just think like even if Courtney Lee's playing fifteen to twenty minutes a game, he's going to help them. And maybe maybe they end up doing the full, you know, Phoenix Suns, just straight up don't play those dudes. I mean, the Bulls did a little bit of that last year too. And yeah. you know, in some of those worst case scenarios, the Knicks could actually be a team affected by lottery reform meaningfully, where being in the the worst couple records, the being one versus three, doesn't really matter a whole lot. It doesn't matter at all, actually. It's, and, it's
4: interesting, by the way, you brought up the Suns because, like, I think you know, Courtney Lee could basically be like shorter Jared Dudley,
1: meaning that he like the team plays better when he's on the floor, or just in terms of skill set type stuff. Both, yeah, I, I, could, I could see a little bit of that. Yeah, Courtney Lee, I, I could see him helping a lot of teams. He's just the the structure of his contract means that we're probably not going to see him in the right circumstances because the Knicks can't buy him out. Like they can't figure that out, and next year. The teams with lofty aspirations. I mean, maybe what happens is that there's the timing works out, and that a team that could be pretty good realizes they're not going to get somebody better than Courtney Lee, and so he mm-hmm. ends up his age. God, that'd be his age 34 season. Right. Yeah. The problem
4: age... I th- with him, I think, is that he seems to be appropriately paid. Mm-hmm. So it's which like... is
1: actually harder to get him on a good team then.
4: Right. Because nobody's la- saying to themselves, "Wow, look at Courtney Lee. He's he's such a bargain. We got to go get him." But also, the Knicks are not like, "All right, we got to get this guy off the roster, and we'll pay." you know, whatever it takes to move him. So it's 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 somewhat difficult to find a fit that benefits both sides just because of that. And I think
1: what I want to end this on is, I mean, certainly a lot of people who are listening to this are Knicks fans, and then there are people who listen to Dunked On or rude On in this case. And I'm going to end up watching a lot more of the Knicks this year, I think, than I did last year because there are so many intriguing – Players and questions. Not only with that, we, we talked a little bit, we talked at various points about Fizdale, but I think we're getting now it's the idea you and I both have law backgrounds of so prejudicial versus probative. I think we're getting more probative information now because the Knicks have hopefully their head coach of the future. They have a lot of players that could be on the next great Knicks team whenever that happens. And so that gives you pieces. It's not just like watching guys that aren't going to be a part of the future there or in all likelihood for a lot of other teams, just due to the age part of their timeline playing out the string. That's not what this team is for significant portions of the season. Maybe it's who they start. Maybe it's who some of their rotational things, but getting the chance to get these early views on Robinson, on Knox, even just, and and a lot of kind of like curious players like Trey Burke, Mario Hazonia, like I don't necessarily think they're part of the Knicks future, but they're. They could be a part of somebody else's future if things go well.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's all true. And also just like due to having Fisdale as the coach now, I mean, it would be almost impossible for them to play a less aesthetically pleasing style of basketball than they played over the last few years. And, and even though without Chris Stapps, the talent level is going to be fairly low overall. Um, I think that watching them play will be a more enjoyable experience because it'll be better to look at. And even if guys are, you know, not necessarily making the shots or struggling to create them at some times, like I would imagine they're going to play harder and in a more, again, aesthetically pleasing style than they have over the past few years, because both of those things are, are things that Fisdale brings to the table. And then like, when you're watching a team that's not very good, which I think, you know, e- even in the best case scenario, they're going to be a, a, a not very good team for most of the time that Chris Stabs is out. It's always just more fun to watch a not very good team featuring young athletic guys who can be something someday rather than the kind of rosters that the Knicks have had over the past few years. And I, you know, for that reason, I'm, I'm more excited to watch this team than any, uh, in, in quite a few years. Um, and I think it's going to be really interesting to watch for, you know, the reasons you mentioned, the reasons I mentioned, and probably reasons that aren't clear to either of us yet, just because, you know, unexpected things happen all the time. And, you know, I, I I think probably after this podcast, I'll probably wind up getting some shit and people will be like, Oh, why are you saying the Knicks are going to be so bad? And like, it's fine, like they don't have their best player for probably half the year or more, like we can acknowledge that they're probably going to struggle because of that, and it's not the end of the world, and there can still be good things that happen during that time and good things that happen after he come back, comes back, and you know guys can surprise us, guys can do things that we don't know they can do yet, and that's I think going to be a lot of the fun of this season is seeing is sort of discovering. What things guys can do either that we don't know or better than we do know or, you know, what kind of things, how they fit together. You know, maybe the combination of of Frank and Knox works really well together because of how Frank's, you know, length and defensive mobility does for the defense, what Knox's... Scoring this really, you know, just just things that I'm making up off the top of my head that that are conceivable. And when you have a group of young guys, which again, the Knicks haven't had in a long time where you can project a lot of things outward, it's just going to be a different kind of experience, I think, for Knicks fans than we're used to because we're, again, we're, we're used to having, you know, these, these older teams that we're trying to say, well, if this happens and this happens and this happens, then maybe we can make the playoffs or, you know, if, you know, whoever has, you know, his best season then maybe we can, you know, fight into the second round, which, you know, did happen that one year. Um it's it's a different kind of team than Knicks fans are used to. And one that I think, you know, management and the coaching staff and a lot of the players are finally on the same page in terms of what the goals are. And that's something that the Knicks haven't had in a while either in terms of those goals being both in alignment and somewhat realistic that can change next offseason. But for now and for, you know, the immediate future, it seems like they're in alignment there and it's realistic and it's. A version of that that is kind of fun even though they probably won't be be all that successful but that knowledge is like okay and I know that I was rambling on kind of there just <laughs> sort of having well a moment, but... I
1: have I have a way to put it together and it's something that as a person who does a national podcast I run into a lot and it is first of all you talked about the Knicks are gonna be a bad team I think this is a way to explain that fan bases get excited and they conflate three different ideas Will be good, can be good, and is good. And this Ooh. Knicks, the, a lot of the players on this Knicks team are going, you know, by having young players who are going to show signs, that will end up happening. And so, you know, Kevin Knox, we could see a lot this year that says, like, he will be good. Or the, the ideal is to move from can be good at this to will be good at this. And then probably not going to get all the way to is good because he's a Rookies are bad. Yeah, and so that's it's always hard. A, a good example of this for Knicks fans who want to get into this is Andrew Wiggins. People would look at Andrew Wiggins, and go, "Oh, look at all this stuff that he's going to be able to do, like with defensively and all this kind of stuff." Until they do it, it's it's almost definitely going to be and can do at best, and that is, it's good to have in mind. I am i don't want people to be jaded. I don't want, it, it, it isn't going into anything to say, be skeptical or anything like that. Because for me, going with that perspective, being a little bit more conservative, shall we say, it makes me appreciate the successes more. And so, because the, the ups and downs of like being convinced that every player is the greatest thing since sliced bread, for me, that's a roller coaster that's not as much fun as appreciating the successes and waiting, waiting for it to become a little bit more real. Because at least for me, I'd Rather be happy, be be kind of skeptical, and then happy than be disappointed more often.
4: Personally, right. It's better to be pleasantly surprised than disappointed all the time.
1: Right. Uh, anything else that we we should discuss with the Knicks? I think we've done a pretty good job of going through everything.
4: Yeah, I think we've covered pretty much everything. Um, you know, we didn't go like incredibly deep into you know what the best things. To happen for them would be in, you know, in free agency or the draft next year. But just, I mean, I'm interested to know what you think would be the best kind of player for them to get, not necessarily a specific guy, but the best kind of player for them to get, um, in free agency to fit, like say, you know, Chris Stapps is your center. Um, Knox is sort of a three, four can go either way, depending on who you sign. Uh, Frank is at one of the backcourt spots. Like, what do you think is, the kind of guy that they need to fit around that court. I mean, obviously ideally you say, well, well they need Kevin Durant. They need Kawhi well, Leonard. Yeah, they need yeah. Kyrie Irving. But like, the specific kind of skills that would unleash those guys the best
1: well so tying in with what i said was their biggest weakness i think the most important thing is like that seam creator, the person mm-hmm. who person who makes defenses have to work have to think have to game plan for because that would make life so much easier on everybody else and so mm-hmm. that can be actually a lot of different guys and if unless frank has a very specific type of good year i expect that that will be a primary ball handler whether mm-hmm. that player defends ones defends threes whatever that that, that that part doesn't matter as much as what they do well, and there are certainly a few of those guys in this free agent class. There, I don't know this draft class yet, but hopefully there will be a few of them there as well, and there, and and. I would actually, with where the Knicks are, this will be a big question in terms of when, like, what is their, I I've developed the term years ago of timetable of contention, but, like, really, when do they want this to kick in? I would actually think right now that they would want not an old point guard, but maybe somebody in their mid to mid-20s, maybe, like, around then, not somebody who's, like, 21 or 22 unless they're really good, just because it takes those guys so long that Mm -hmm. by that point, you're even talking about late Porzingis' extension. And so maybe looking for a free agent point guard now, if a good guy is available in the draft and you can do both, yeah, I consider that. And I would probably, I mean, obviously, if you can get a star, then you get a star. But in terms of number one score, like a score who's not really as much of a, a creator for other people, they could certainly benefit from that. But I would say that's less uh, uh, an inferior use of, of their team-building tools than a real shot creator for other people. Because I think they have a good collection of individuals that can take advantage of the circumstances created. And so that you could you could draw a lot of I'm deliberately not saying names but you can kind of Mm -hmm. infer who that would be but that's really where I would go with it but then the other thing that I think would be a real game changer for them especially if it could be in certain forms is a player who can defend elite wings because my expectation is that Kevin Knox is not going to be that guy he can be a lot of other really good things as an NBA player but if they can find that in a player that is capable enough offensively to be a part of the scheme then you start to sit there and think depending on what happens with Knox, depending on what happens with Porzingis. Maybe we can be spoken for in at least the starting lineup at the three, the four, and the five. And once you get to that point as a team, and you can throw your remaining resources at a smaller number of positions, you get better outcomes. Like I think if I brought up the Rockets last off season, the fact that Daryl Morey, once they got Chris Paul, could throw everything they had at those forward spots was incredibly useful for them. They took a bunch of gambles. They, I mean, they ended up getting really good players to take less money than I thought they deserved, but. That it's freeing to have to, to be so laser focused on a single thing. And so if they can solve the primary ball handler question, if they can solve the, the three, four, the, the next to Knox guy question, if they can do either one of those by
4: July 20th, 2019,
1: they would be in a really, really good place depending on development.
4: I think that all of that is true. I think if they solve the primary ball handler position, it puts them in a similar position, obviously not at quite as high a level, but a similar position roster construction-wise to where Houston was last year, where they can then just say, we're going to throw all of our resources at the small and big wing spots so we can cover both of the kind of guys that we might want next to Knox and Porzingis in the front court. Um you know so on that level it's fascinating but also I think I don't know much or really anything about next year's draft either but I do think that what type of role the player they take plays will tell us a lot about what they think is going to happen in free agency or what they're targeting in free agency. If they come out and take a ball handler with an early pick in the draft, I think that that probably signals to us like, hey, this is going to be our guy at that spot. We either don't think Kyrie Irving is coming here or that's not the guy we want to go after. Um, if they don't, then maybe they think that's a little bit more realistic. Um, I don't know how realistic it is. Like, I don't know why anybody would want to leave Boston right now. Like, You're going to be contending for the title for the foreseeable future. But who knows? He's vaguely from the New York area. So I guess that counts now. But I I do think I don't think they're going to take a big man like they have Chris Epps and they just drafted Robinson. as like another project big man in the future type. So whether they go wing or lead ball handler, I think is going to be a signal toward what they think is going to happen or what they want to happen in free agency. And that's something that I think we should be looking out for, too.
1: Absolutely. That's something that I'm going to be watching as well this season. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks
4: for having me. And, uh, I always love these podcasts. I have a bunch of them saved so that I can listen, uh, on my flight that is somehow still not canceled to Charlotte tomorrow for my cousin's wedding. Um, Hopefully I can both go there and come back and listen to a bunch of the podcasts along the way. Thanks again
1: to Jared Dubin for taking the time. You can read him all over the place and you can follow him on Twitter at J A Dubin five. That's J A D U B I N. And then the number five really love talking with him. He and I have talked Nicks for feels like a lifetime at this point. Also, of course, want to thank our sponsors for this episode Lumosity Lightstream and Mott You should definitely check them out, and if you want to hear the URLs and all that stuff again, I'm making you go back and listen to to the dulcet tones of Nate Duncan's voice, you can do that there. If you want to support this show, lots of great ways you can do it. Number one is check out those advertisers, but also leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player if you're choosing, and if it's Apple Podcasts, great. If it's not Apple Podcasts, you can do it in both, which is pretty awesome. And then subscribing, downloading every episode, those are pretty standard things for podcasts, but they are very important for us, and we are still getting close. Next week will actually be the final week that Dunked Don is in the twice-weekly shift, and then we will get back to full-time I'm excited about uh, already actually have those episodes recorded because I am actually leaving for Hong Kong. I will be there when most of you listen to this podcast. So I had to pre-record everything before I left. So Nate and I are actually going to be gone at the same time. But really, really good episodes and and content. I'm a little bit scared that some of it's going to get shifted by trades because that's what always happens. But I'm really proud of that. So you'll see those episodes Sunday night and Wednesday night in all likelihood. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. At
0: Bet365, we don't do ordinary.